Hi there. We just wanted to say a little something about the episode you're about to hear. This is the first in our series of three non-Bond film reviews. And we decided, didn't we, Josh, the three of us would select a film that has to do with spy craft, has to do with intelligence, has to do with, you know, the general mm. James Bond atmosphere. Yeah, look at competing spy franchises to the Bond franchise in that, in that capacity as well. Yeah, we Jeff's going to choose one. Josh has selected one. This is the episode you're listening to here now on Mission Impossible. And I'm going to select one as well. And throughout series two, we're just going to dash these in like a nice flavor, I suppose you could say. I think uh, it should be an interesting experiment and, you know, and see if uh, we, we might create some discussion or branch out, you know, our, our fandom, you know, outside of Bond as well. Yeah. You know, the, the review you're going to listen to is not exhaustive. We, we don't go into quite the same surgical detail with these non-Bond films as we do with the Bond franchise. We can't promise you won't have hot takes. We can't promise that there yeah. might be some bantering, right. uh, mild arguing perhaps, mm-hmm. but that's, you know, that's, uh, that, that's what makes things fun. That's right. And so hopefully you like this. Uh, let us know at bombbynumbers3 at gmail.com or catch us up on the socials. Let us know what you think. We, we weren't interested in selecting the, our favorite movies necessarily, but instead just other ones that might be good for discussion. And Josh, I credit you, buddy. I, I think you found a good film here today for us to discuss. I think the conversation we had was really good. I think it did get some interesting opinions out there. And hopefully you guys listening to this will, uh, will also enjoy the show. So, yeah, there you go. Three non-bonds beginning here with Josh's choice of Mission Impossible from 1996. Let's go. Hello and welcome back to Bond by Numbers. Thank you very much, everybody, for joining us here today. It is an exciting time because it's the first of our three non-Bonds with the BFGs. With, that's right. Yeah, that song was in my head as well. Yeah. Yeah. Four non-blondes, right? Do you know? Yeah. Do you know what? That's yeah, funny. Yeah. After you mentioned that to me, I went out and I found that He-Man clip, right? You know the He-Man clip. <laughs> and yeah. yeah, it does kind of take you down a rabbit hole, doesn't it? That. Uh, it really, really does. So before we get into that, let's just do our roll call here. I'm Scott in Dumfries, Scotland. I'm Jeff in Ottawa. Here. <laughs> present, I'm, uh, present, Josh present, on rather. the other side of Ottawa. Mm-hmm. So here, oh. present, yeah. And how are we doing, guys? We've had a couple episodes now in lockdown. How are we doing with work, with home, with family? Everybody keeping okay? Everyone's yeah. keeping okay. Uh, it yeah. looks like restrictions are being slightly lifted, uh, huh. particularly uh, in the center uh, of Toronto. Particularly, yes. Oh. I woke up to see I mean, that I'm story. Going, yeah. I'm going to a family barbecue this evening, a small one with just me and my parents and my sister. So, I mean, I think that's pretty low-key. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen my dad for like three months. <laughs> he's never been happier. <laughs> well, he, he's, he's going golfing today, actually, so is he's he? very excited. So, Which is yes. like the only socially acceptable yes. mm-hmm. uh, sport to play. Yeah, and is, my mom is very happy about that as well. So is he going to be there for <laughs> dinner? I believe so, yes, just in time. Okay. It's just funny that he scheduled a golf game on the day that <laughs> you were going over for a barbecue. Now I'm, I'm just I'm just connecting well, the dots. You don't here. play you don't play golf at like six in the six in the evening though, do you? Okay, cool, cool. But everybody's doing well, is what you're seeing. Everyone seems to be doing well. Yes, relatively speaking, I you know getting a little bit of cabin fever every now and then, being crapped at home and stuff, and then going straight to work, and then mm-hmm. you know it's the same kind of routine, but. Normalcy is good, but at the same time, it's still kind of a sci-fi dystopian novel out there. It is. Yeah, yeah it is. Yeah. Uh, the Scottish government just released 
earlier, or I should say a few days ago, released its sort of pathway out of lockdown, the different phases and stages of uh, re-socialization and, well, steps towards normalcy, I guess you could say. Uh, teachers are going to be back at work in the middle of June. Uh, kids won't be until August, which is the start of our year here. But teachers right. are going to be going back, and I think that's probably a, a good, necessary thing. I've been working from home, which is fine, but, you know, if you don't have your home set up for it, then it doesn't matter. You can't you can't meet kids online. We know we're not allowed to do video teaching. We're only allowed to do some kinds of video teaching, but it's, it's, it's all very strange and very wrapped up in union, um, you know, allowances and, and whatnot. So I think being back in the classroom will hopefully enable the freedom to teach better you know you're not thinking about whether this is appropriate or not it's it's just been a weird sort of uh, you know people got different opinions on what you should do and what you shouldn't do and the unions are saying one thing and the government's saying another yeah. thing so everyone is saying something different regardless yeah. if you're in yeah. scotland or canada or the u.s the other thing is here is that this is a situation that we've never really come across other than if you want to talk about the 1918 influenza which was you know over 100 years ago and things have changed but the problem is this is a fluid situation and it just keeps changing it's it's not like we've done it before to i mean we've done we've had uh, pandemics and epidemics for, for different kinds of flus and, and outbreaks but it, not to the scale in in current in, in contemporary times mm-hmm. and it's just it just because it's fluid it just keeps changing and changing and people are just getting fed up and they're just like they just wanted like no i can you know it's nice out i i'm not going to get affected i'm not going and so this is what happens so people just yeah, do what people want to do mm-hmm. and they think they'll be fine and unfortunately they're not so gentlemen i i, I got to ask you okay in these tough quarantine times i was on a walk yesterday and i was thinking to myself man if i had to choose one bond layer villain or you know oh. environment to be stuck in lockdown what would it be and i want to oh. ask you guys that question i think it'd be fun what bond <laughs> what what villain's layer would you choose if you mm. had the choice to be locked in quarantined Ooh. you'd have to be there for at least at least a duration of where we are right now which is what eight nine months nine weeks eight or nine weeks um either goldfinger's um Rumpus room? Was it his rumpus room? Okay, cool. Yeah, his rumpus or, room. His, or, well, like, or the island. Or the island. His... Yeah. Or, yeah, his steady one. Yeah. Or, uh, but also maybe the um, Scaramunga's uh, island there. Okay. Oh, that, that's a good choice. That's, that's, a, that's a good shout, yeah. you got your beach, your private beach. You've got your fun yeah. house that you could play around yep. in. You've got that beautiful dining room. That's a really good show. He's I would be really very... Mod Adams. I don't know. And you got Mod Adams. <laughs> okay, so is that the one you're going with? You're gonna yeah. Lead. Okay, Josh. What about you? Oof, that is a good one. To be honest with you, I would definitely outfit it differently than he did. Uh, and, no, you uh, can't. You can't outfit it differently. I this can't is play, the whole, I, no, you can't I do can't, it. No, I can't no, outfit no. it. No, because then I it's not. That. That's not that villain's lair. Yeah, you got to go with what we know from the canon. Uh, well, <laughs> it is tough, isn't it? It is tough. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, you know what? I'm just gonna go with Atlantis because it's because it's freaking cool. It and is. Atlantis is cool. Yeah. That way. Yeah. 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 Atlantis and, is and cool. You got all your amenities there. You got like the freaking Borgia dining room there and mm-hmm. stuff like that with all its Renaissance art. And, yep. yep. Well, although that's although a good you got you, you got to like fish, I'm sure. Like, get, you know, there'll be a steady steady diet of fish. You know, in that particular uh, situation. Yeah, I I, I was kind of like you in a sense, Josh. I I was thinking about something off 
you know, offshore, <laughs> you know, and I was also thinking about the Diamonds Are Forever, Blofeld's oil rig. I thought that would be quite cool oh, to hang out in. Oh, yeah, yeah. But then I realized, I don't know, actually, oh, would I be that happy Piz to be? Gloria? Piz Gloria, yeah, yeah. That's that was no. Oh, that's ultimately what I decided to go with was Piz Gloria. But oh, I forgot, I forgot about Piz Gloria. I, Damn I, I wondered, oh. I wondered, I wondered about that one. I was thinking about with, that with the revolving dining room and oh yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah, but of course you're alone, right? And that's the other thing too. And you have an allergy so, clinic down below, so you, so you can create work, work on a cure for the coronavirus. That's, right. that's, <laughs> that's it. That's perfect. And, right? and then you can get the cure, and then give it to all of the angels of death, and they can spread the cure across the world. <laughs> Yeah, it's like that's the anti That's right. You 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 did yeah. a better job. I was thinking about it purely from a selfish point of view. You know, what would I be most comfortable in? What, what furniture would I, I enjoy? Would you know, I could ski. I could ski. I could do all these things. But then I'm actually like, yeah, you're right. You could actually do good stuff for the world too if you had your staff with you. The other one I was thinking about was just because it was beautiful. Max's or Drax's mansion. You know, I mean, I come on, pooh. Oh yeah. yeah. Uh, or or Zorin's mansion. Complete with uh, Doberman. Yes. There you go. Yeah. Beef, yeah. beef eating Doberman, right? What about Zorin's mansion too, and, and like mm. his stable oh, yeah. and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. That, that too. Anyway, thank thank you, gentlemen, for going down that little rabbit hole with me. And <laughs> let, let us know. Uh, give give us an email or, or fire us uh, bond my yeah. bond by numbers three at gmail.com. Let us know what quarantine layer would you prefer to spend these dark <laughs> and difficult days in. Uh, let us know. Just a bit of fun, or uh, hit us up on. Uh, yeah, Josh, get 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 the socials working. Josh, get a Facebook poll happening. Get a get an Instagram or Twitter thing going. Would you and get, yeah. get people's opinions on that one? <laughs> Sounds like a plan. But a, to, to bring it to bring it back, I mean, now yeah. if I, I recall, isn't the the storyline for No Time to Die? Isn't that involving some kind mm. of plague or infection or something? I've heard rumors about. Yeah, environmental health and uh, purging the world of certain things. Yes, I, I mean, I don't know more than that, and I don't really want to look into that to be honest. Because when the film comes out in twenty forty eight, I'm going to look forward <laughs> to encountering that plot line. Yeah. Yeah. While uh, while at the same time, you know, like uh, enjoying your cranberry juice and uh... <laughs> yeah. hey, man, you don't have to be like 75 to enjoy that. Oh, I love cranberry juice. Cranberry juice is great, especially <laughs> cranberry a grape or cranberry raspberry combination mm. with, with ice. Really good stuff. Into a So guys, this is our first of the three non-bonds, and I mean, do you want to say a little bit about that? What what we're doing here? For I mean, this is not going to be the next three episodes, but over the over the you know for the remainder of the season, and we're going whenever, to. Whenever I think of three, three non-bonds, I, I I have that song in my head. Na, 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 What's na, going on? What's going on? What's going on? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, blondes, right? <laughs> I went to I went out and looked for your. Um, uh, uh, on your recommendation, Josh, I went out and looked for the the He-Man YouTube clip. That was pretty funny. Uh, oh, I, I do yeah. remember seeing some before, but it had a bit more, um, made a bit more impact this time around because you're the first, Josh. You're the first of us to have a film in the three non-Bond series, and you've decided to go for Mission Impossible. I'm curious, why did you choose this one? Well. Uh... It's considered like one of the one of the essential spy movies, I guess, of the past you know 50 years or so. Is it? On top of that, it's the first film of a franchise that mm-hmm. is currently competing with the James Bond series. Right. So, good choice. I, I just thought yeah. that it was you know that's a full recommendation in my opinion. Like right. That's, good. Uh, also, uh, I'd, I'd, 
and what's interesting is that it's also a franchise that's been around for over 20 years at this point, right? It's almost 25 years. That's true, yeah. As a film, yeah. As a film franchise, it's even been around longer than that beforehand, right? Mm-hmm. Because of the, of the two television series in the 60s and the 80s. Yeah, and uh, I'd have to say that this is a good example of a franchise, though it was kind of like, it kind of plateaued, but in its recent years, like in the last couple of years, it's really kind of taken off and uh, and had a, res- like a, a resurgence that's uh, quite quite good. Whereas a lot of, if you look at a lot of uh, film franchises, how they kind of try to do a sequel or something, or they branch out like mm-hmm, different mm-hmm. Uh, franchises, like we'll say like the Fast and the Furious, where they start doing films that are just based on characters yeah. just to try and make a buck. If you, and, um, but with the Mission Impossibles, they, they actually like the quality uh, and the production keeps going up and up, which is which is nice to see, which is which is different for a lot of franchises uh, in Hollywood, yes. especially. And, and again, when you have, um, uh, you know, espionage type uh, films and franchises and, and when you look at Bonds and you look at Mission Impossible, these obviously are the two big ones, and they do it right. But Mission Impossible, its stock keeps going up, which is really nice mm-hmm. to see. Yeah, it's not tiring out. Uh, it just I, seems to yeah. no. And Cruise is a big thing about that, I think. I think yeah. because now later in his yeah, life, right. he's a big producer. He's producing a lot of stuff now. Yes, he's really into exactly. producing sci-fi in the past 10 years, too. And it seems like he's just really good at uh, nailing genre films. And with, and I think too, with like you know, with the popularity of like cinematic universes nowadays, mm-hmm. I think he decided to turn Mission Impossible into a serial more so than like one event films, every like sequels. So I just think his heart is all into the story, to mm-hmm. like, you know, exactly and, and what they're telling, and 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 so I think that's the reason why it's become so popular in the past couple of years and successful. And the other thing with Cruz is that is you you can love or love him or hate him or you know you know there's a lot of people that kind of just like threw him by the wayside or, after or just find him weird <laughs> or just find him weird yeah I mean that's what I mean it's like I was like he was one of my favorite actors as a kid and then I kind of was like once he started getting all weird with the Scientology I kind of didn't care but but the one thing you you can't deny is that he's he's got a passion for the for you know uh for for acting and and uh and films mm-hmm. so yeah. he doesn't quit and so this acting man like stunts too well, no stunt, that's what that's what i mean it's like when he puts his mind to it he doesn't he doesn't quit and so he really really like, enjoyed the the mission impossible mm-hmm. franchise and so he's put a lot into it over the last you know 20 25 years i mean so and it's a shows. guy who like tied yeah this is a guy who tied like a suspension line to his torso and ran around the outside of the Burj Khalifa in Dubai without yeah. any like protection whatsoever. And, and, and he was in his fifties at that point. Even then, even I think he was in his late forties when he did those uh, protocols. Forty nine. That was like yeah, yeah forty nine. Hey, guys, uh, just 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 hold back here a second, okay? I'm fairly certain. Okay, I'm fairly certain that Roger Moore did put the spacesuit on himself. Okay, I'm I'm pretty confident in saying that. Like <laughs> he, he put he put the spacesuit on. I think himself. I think yeah, he I'll did. Give him that you know what credit. I mean? I'll, I'll give him that uh, credit. I mean that yeah. helmet, you know, that helmet would have been that again, a tough, bit tight on his skull. I'm sure that that was yeah. that's an equal stunt, isn't it? Absolutely, and I mean he hung on for dear life from the tenth for the five feet on top of that Golden Gate Bridge <laughs> that's right. uh, yeah. set yeah. that was built for a view to a kill as well. You know, he so, did, yeah. He did. Who, he tied the, who tied his Converse? Who tied his Converse? <laughs> so Not, that's oh, that's true because he did have Chucks on in space, didn't yeah, he? Yeah, he had Chucks. He did have Chucks yeah. on in space. Well, listen, guys, I, I think you know it's fair. It's fair to say that most most <laughs> of our 
most of our listeners will be familiar with this film. Now, I had never seen it before, and then I'm really? putting it out there. Nope, never seen it before. Uh-huh. I have. I never saw really? any. Never seen any of the Mission oh. Impossible films wow. before. Even like the. So, so even the original film you, you never saw. Oh, wow. Okay. No, I had, I had no memory of ever seeing this film. I do not ever remember as a teenager wow. seeking this one out. Uh, I'm sure I might have caught bits of it on television, and I know I you know I've seen the trailer or something like that sure. because the, I mean, the the whole you know dropping from the ceiling in the CIA thing that was that's in I, my I, mind. That's iconic imagery, but, yeah, exactly. But no, I I, I didn't. I'm, I'm not a Mission Impossible fan. I'm not a non-fan. Yeah. I just simply have never been introduced to the franchise. Never watched okay. it. And well, so okay, getting get getting into this was quite interesting for me because I knew okay. you guys knew something about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and by the way, I, I didn't avoid it because I'm a Bond fan. In fact, it wasn't until recently that I was even aware that the later films were considered a rival, you know, threat or a threat. But yeah, yeah. kind of like well, you, wouldn't, honest, you wouldn't want to release. Uh, if you're, to be completely if you're, honest, I didn't see the original film until it was on VHS. My parents rented it like after a year or two when it came out, like in, on yeah, video in 97 or something like that. Yeah. And like I liked, I thought it was okay. But I found it mm-hmm. a bit confusing. Right. And, I he, and I wasn't a huge fan of MI two to be honest. Like it was very no. different. Yeah. And then uh, MI three, I saw a couple of years later. Like it was good. Yeah, but then was... like I saw Ghost Protocol, and that just blew my mind. And I guess yep. it was just kind of the movie that I was looking for at the time in my life. Right. And then I just like I've ever since then like Rogue Nation and Ghost, and then following up, you know, with the recent one uh, Fallout. Mm-hmm. Like I was like, mm-hmm. wow, like this is this, these are the ways I want. This this reminds me of of how much I used to enjoy the Bond films, you know, right. post, yeah, post, okay. post Casino Royale. Mm-hmm. Uh, and much as I love Skyfall, like uh, I think any of the the last three Mission Impossible movies trumps uh, Quantum of Solace, Spectre. Huh. Well, that's interesting, and I, yeah. I I applaud your choice then in that case because what you're saying about the series, if I understand you correctly, is that there is no necessary story arc. You don't have to continue the narrative uh, if it's more episodic in I nature. Then from I would say from episode four and onward. Sorry, from okay. movie from yep. First Protocol, which is number four onwards. Mm-hmm. I would say they're actually they begin kind of it begins kind of begins a serial storyline, especially the second movie. It's almost like it's not even the same character. Oh so, yeah, that one. It's just a John uh, Woo action. It's John Woo. I mean, all you have to say is that Limp Bizkit does the song. Metallica <laughs> does like does that. Hey, hey, hey. So, Josh, I guess what I was trying to say was that if the later films are a little less um, are a little bit more episodic, then I, I applaud your decision to go with this one because you you don't think that this one is as good as those later ones. And in a one off sort of three non bond scenario, I'm interested that you chose this first one instead of getting us to watch one of the ones that you maybe enjoyed a bit more. Well, I actually like this movie. Like, I mean, I, I think it's like it's good. I don't, but in, but watching it again in comparison to the ones that I've seen in the past couple of mm-hmm. years, uh, I found that it definitely didn't. Get, I get the same feeling from it. Okay. And I have, I, and I've been, I was talking to a friend uh, about this last night about the film, and he decided to watch it. Mm-hmm. And he was saying how like he preferred this movie over the new ones because mm-hmm. he huh. finds that like Tom Cruise is just too like all the stunts that he does and everything like that for the exciting action sequences, mm-hmm. he finds him a more believable, I guess, as a spy, I guess, in this movie, as opposed to like yeah. the, uh, the, the later films. But I think Cruz sells like the stunts pretty well, despite. Oh, he does. He does. Yeah. Okay, but, cool. Yeah. Right. Well, I mean, hopefully our listeners will, uh, you know, be familiar with the film and they'll enjoy uh, the, the discussion that we're about to have. Now, Josh. I think my summary is pretty extensive and it'll break it down. Don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> 
Now, Josh, you you got some production notes for us, don't you? L- like we do with our Bond reviews, uh, we got a Cubby's Corner segment. But uh, yeah, cru- what would you call this? Cruz's Corner? Corner? I don't know. Yeah. He's producer, so yeah, that works okay. Yeah. Uh, let's just start our three non-Bonds with some production information on Josh's choice, the first Mission Impossible. Sparked by the popularity of the James Bond craze, Bruce Geller created a spy series for American TV audiences. Produced by Desilu Studios and airing on CBS television from 1966 to 1973, Mission Impossible was a smash hit with audience and critics alike. Unlike the Bond films and its imitators on film and, and television, it centered around a team of spies working together to complete an objective. While entertaining and episodic, the show was famous for its good writing, intriguing characters, and solid performances from its actors. Uh, Barbara Bain won an, an Emmy, for example. The show was revived for New Generation in 1988 with a sequel series by ABC Television, but did not strike the same chord as the original and was cancelled two seasons later. At this time before and after the series was shut down, a film adaptation under Paramount Pictures, who held the rights, have been discussed but, but had trouble finding a decent treatment. Enter Tom Cruise. The actor was at the height of his success and wanted to try his hand at production. He teamed with veteran producer Paula Wagner to form Cruise Wagner Productions. For their own inaugural production, Cruise wanted to adapt Mission Impossible. Paramount, as I mentioned, owned the rights to the series, but was unhappy with the treatments that had been written. Cruise and Wagner convinced Paramount to vet them a $70 million budget. Once this was completed, they hired Sidney Pollack, the actor-slash-director, to begin working on a screenplay. Pollock, taking the lead, hired Brian De Palma, American filmmaker known for Carrie, Body Double, Dress to Kill, and The Untouchables, among others, if somewhat controversial, for claims of being a misogynist. Hi, can you can you just say something about that BFG? A little bit about um, De Palma's reputation. I don't. I mean, I don't want to go down a rabbit hole, and I don't want you to feel compelled to sort of like you know get into anything deep. But what what was the vibe around Hollywood or among actors at the time? Well, he was supported by like prominent critics like Roger Ebert and Pauline Kale, who saw through like what people saw as misogyny and saw that he was actually trying to like show, you know, um, almost like showing the evil of misogyny in his films by 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 depicting it, because, you know, there is no real um, indicator in his character that he was that type of person whatsoever. Right. So it's Um, less less a personal thing and more a film visionary sort of thing. Exactly. Exactly. I got you. Right. Yeah, because I mean, he's been he's been associated, you know, Carrie. You know, you have the whole like menstrual drama and that mm-hmm. going on, and then and there's also a Stephen King adaptation just to add to that as well. So I mean, it's not really his fault. Um, he was interested in a lot of like early uh, horror films too. Like he made like B movies and stuff, like The Phantom of the. Um, Oh, I forgot, I forgot the name of the movie now because you asked me this question. I just I was now Sorry, I'm going buddy. back into into his B history. So I'm trying to think of an, a, a, something something about the Phantom, Phantom of the Paradise. That's what it was. I believe that he was involved with that movie. But correct me if I'm wrong. Okay. Uh, but yeah, but movies like Body Double and Dress to Kill, uh, these were sort of like the kind of movies that he was. Uh, known for i guess early in his career yeah, and then eventually yeah. i guess because of the stylistic techniques that he used like he borrowed uh he was one of the considered one of the those new hollywood filmmakers like coppola and mm-hmm. spielberg and scorsese and whatnot right uh but he actually he was really into godard and french new wave cinema so you see a lot of european influences in his work as well okay cool right well we'll, we'll get into it and eventually sure, he but... got into mainstream hollywood and i think untouchables was was really the first big like mainstream movie that he did uh, so like so he basically applied his own style to Hollywood films at the time, which well, kind of made them stand out differently, you know. 
was Scarface mainstream when it came out, or did it kind of get, get Scarface later? kind of built it kind of built this cult a cult setting because again that because of Scarface you know no one's surprised that he made that movie at the time I guess for those who were critically against him because again it was like a orgy of violence essentially. Yeah, but yeah. over the time Scarface has gotten a lot of of of, of, of appreciation uh, and it has a cult status in that in that sense, right? All right. Um, but you can tell, I mean, he definitely has a great visual style. I mean, just look at the Untouchables. That whole scene where Malone gets assassinated, you, you know, like in, in in his apartment. I mean, that that that's brilliant, brilliant um, way of, of you know basically build, building suspense, but also tricking the audience at the same time. And this, of course, would would be a stylistic thing that he would put in the Mission Impossible films as well. Right. Well, back to that. Sorry, pal. A Mission Impossible film, I should say. But anyway, so. Sidney Pollack, uh, who I who just took on as an aside, if anyone seen Eyes Wide Shut, he played a significant role in that film as well. Uh, Tom Cruise uh, and him, they got Brian Palma to direct the film. So David Coop and Steven Zalian. Uh, now Coop, best or Kep, sorry, David Kep, I meant to say. I think that's how you pronounce his name. Uh, he was the screenwriter of Jurassic Park, and Steven Zalian was the uh, screenwriter of um, Schindler's List. So. Yeah, I knew, I knew that Kep had did had done the Lost World. I knew that he had done the the sequel. Um, yeah. I, I didn't know that he had done the original as well. Goes to show. I think he, he worked on it with uh, Crichton, I believe. Yeah, he did. You're absolutely right. And before that, I can see he did Death Becomes Her. Yeah. He did to, uh, Toy Soldiers. That's right. And uh, I guess though he, he was getting into things, wasn't he? Later, he did another De Palma yeah. film later with Snake Eyes. He did, yeah. I think he 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 also wrote the screenplay to Raimi's Spider-Man in a two thousand two in two thousand one, I believe, as well. If I'm not mistaken, he did. Yes, he did. And the uh, Crystal Skull, the Indiana Jones film. <laughs> Man, maybe he was calling to touch things up. Who knows? Um, but anyway, so yeah, Kep and Stalian wrote two drafts for Cruz Wagner, but they were not satisfactory. Veteran screenwriter Robert Town of Chinatown fame and known to be kind of an infamous person in Hollywood himself was brought in to polish things off. Zillian was let go, and Cop, what Kep at first was as well, but he was kept on to work the script for Town for another million dollars. In one of the early drafts of the screenplay, there was a rather different opening sequence than what we see in the finished version of the film. It set up the notion of a love triangle between Phelps, Claire, and Ethan. This would be the setup of themes later used in the film, but De Palma had a cut because the test audience found it took them out of the genre, quote-unquote. The main plot remained in the final draft with some additional scenes written to flesh out the film. Regardless, pre-production had already begun before the finished script. De Palma plotted out the action sequences, but Kep and Town were not satisfied. Town's main goal was to create a three-act structure for the film around those action sequences. De Palma was adamant uh, to surprise the audience at every turn. He was instrumental in making Prague the setting for the first act of the film, and he got Cruz on board with this. This was a big thing at the time, as Prague at this point in time anyway, was rarely seen in Hollywood films. Um, that would change in the future, of course, because Prague is, was ends up becoming a very kind of like rote location for American films. Also, quite inexpensive. I mean, comparatively yeah. so. Yeah, because even like in the last Spider-Man movie, a part of the movie was filmed in Prague and set in Prague and stuff. Like, there's a whole scene on the bridge with on the Charles Bridge, even. So, I mean, uh, it's still. I guess Mission Impossible was the beginning of Prague becoming, you know, like, ooh, this is a cool European city to film, and that's relatively cheap, but also, you know, really looks good on screen. Yeah. Yeah. Another issue that came up involved with the budget, but Cruz managed to bring it in to $62 million because he wanted a spectacle. Paramount agreed. When the film was announced, fans of the series were to learn it would be in fact be within the canon established by the television series, taking, six place, taking place six years after the ending of the sequel series. To keep the fandom happy, actors from the original series were asked to reprise their roles. 
Peter Graves, who played Jim Phelps in the television series, was asked to return, but after learning from the script that Phelps was to turn traitor, he immediately turned it down. This decision put to the to, by the production to make longtime beloved IMF agent Phelps, a villain turned off the fan base instantly. But who listened to them, especially back then? With Cruz as a new lead, uh, Ethan Hunt, John Voight was cast as Jim Phelps, Emilio Estevez, Kristen Scott Thomas, French actress Emmanuel Baer, Canadian actor Henry Cherney, French actor Jean Renault, as well as Pulp Fiction veteran Ving Rams and veteran British actress Vanessa Redgrave filled out the remainder of the cast. Uh, some fun facts about the production. The aquarium restaurant sequence when Hunt meets and flees from Kittredge was Cruz's idea. There was over 16 tons in all the tanks combined, and when the detonators would go off for the sequence, the water and the flying glass would be a danger. De Palma initially filmed the sequence with the stuntman, but didn't look believable to him in the dailies, so Cruz was asked, and he did it with a plum. The first of many Tom Cruise slash Ethan Hunt crazy stunts. <laughs> Uh, for the film's climax, Town and Kep's script required a confrontation between the villain and Cruz's hunt atop a train. Cruz insisted on the TGV French trains, but they refused on the grounds of not wanting to be responsible for any damages or injuries or worse during filming on their trains. When things had been negotiated, they were still missing a track to film the train on. While De Palma went surveying in Europe and America for, the, for track to use, Cruz wine and dined the execs and they finally relented and gave him a track as well. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Stingy uh, French TGV guys there, eh? Um, so. Uh, skydiving simulator, the only one of its kind, was used for the above train sequence as Cruz wanted the winds to be strong enough to blow him away from the train if he let go. 140 mile per hour winds were fired at the actor stuntmen for the sequence. As for the exterior shots of the train, the Glasgow southwestern line between New Cumnock, Dumfries, and Anan was used. That and a stage with blue screen for the VFX, which were handled by Industrial Light and Magic. Basically, the whole production was as smooth as Ethan Hunt. It was under budget and on time. There were rumors that De Palma and Cruz didn't see eye to eye, especially when De Palma abruptly decided to drop the press interviews around premiere time. But there's been nothing to confirm this was the case, but he just did it. Maybe it's just, you know, typical director seclusion, you know, maybe a bit too high on himself, you know, because he thinks he's making art more so than hmm. a Hollywood film. So it's hard to say. Yeah. And of course, the Mission Impossible film uses Lalo Schifrin's original theme from Mission Impossible. Alan Silvestri, famous for Back to the Future and several Marvel Cinematic Universe films these days, was originally cued to score the film, but his early cut of work was rejected by newbie producer Cruz after hearing the 20 minutes of score. Wow. Yeah. Enter Danny Elfman, who wrote a whole new score with only two, a few weeks of a deadline. He worked the main theme into the score as well as Schifrin's plot theme, as it's called, and his own motifs for Hunt, Claire, and the IMF. As it turns out, members of U2, Larry Mullen Jr. and Adam Clayton were MI fans and worked together on creating a new cover of Schifrin's theme. Clayton did his work in a New York City studio and Mullen tweaked his way on his version in Dublin between regular U2 album recording sessions. Uh, what, album, Brian, what album was being recorded in 96? Gotta be Zeropa, because that would be after... Yeah, yeah. Or Pop, maybe it was Pop actually. Yeah, maybe it was Pop. Because I think Zeropa came uh, before Pop, if I'm not mistaken. It did, Part, it did. It, it did, yeah. The Brian Eno with European dance clubbing sound style inspired the two versions. Polygram, the label producing the soundtrack, decided to use both versions, which soon became dance remixes across the globe. Apple had a $15 million promotion campaign with Mission Impossible. It had a game, print ads, TV spot, and scenes from the show turned into a feature film. Uh, and, of course, the use of Apple computers in the film. As for the reception, generally positive, but with C to B-plus reviews. Ebert and others gave it three out of four stars, as did Gleiberman. Richard Sickle of Time magazine was less generous. Another reviewer pointed out that it's technically sound and it's a thrill ride, but the characters don't crackle with chemistry. They're automatons that are part of a plot. Audience reception was more positive. It opened May 22, 1996 and made 11.8 million U.S. 
It grossed 75 million in the first six days and 56 million over Memorial Day weekend. Cruise not knowingly opted out of its 20 million fee and took a percentage of the box office instead. It grossed 180.9 million in North America and almost 300 million overseas. It spawned a sequel, Mission Impossible 2, and a few years later, directed by then in vogue Hong Kong filmmaker John Woo. More of an action movie. A third movie produced and directed by J.J. Abrams followed a few years later, and then Cruise resurrected the franchise with Ghost Protocol in 2011, directed by Brad Bird, which was a sensation and was followed by Rogue Nation and his direct sequel Fallout, both written and directed by Christopher McQuarrie. The later films emphasized a team dynamic of a television series and won back some old fans and gained many more new fans. Another fun fact... The original film was nominated for a Golden Raspberry uh, Award for worst written film grossing over 100 million. Too convoluted. <laughs> Which one? This one. Yeah. Yeah, I might uh, have a few things to say about that. Um, now, the, the more recent uh, Mission Impossible films, Josh. Now I haven't mm-hmm. seen them, but the more re- the more recent Mission Impossible films are are akin to Bond rivals, aren't they? In terms of their action set pieces, and 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 some some would say superior to. Uh, yeah, I would definitely agree. It uses a lot of old school filmmaking that the Bond films used to do, and uh, and, and 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 very relies on very well produced like stunt sequences, mostly featuring Tom Cruise himself, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but uh, one thing they did do is they focus on the team dynamic that made the show so popular. And mm-hmm. I think you know, like, I mean, as much as I like the early dynamic in the beginning of the Mission Impossible of the first film, which we're going to be, you know, which which we're reviewing today. Um, once that team is taken out, you know, you lose a bit of the element of fun and then you're just dealing with, you're, you're just basically Tom Cruise is dealing with, you know, all these other characters that he's trying to negotiate with and figure out their, their own mo- motivations throughout the film, right? Because almost everyone is against him in his own way. Um, whereas like in the other Mission Impossible films now, like you got like, you know, Cruise working with Ving Rhames, working with Simon Pegg and Jeremy Renner and Rebecca Ferguson and Alec Baldwin, like a whole bunch of, you know, like it's a whole teamwork, right? So that creates a dynamic of fun that I think a lot of the fans found was missing from this film as much as they may have liked you know some of the espionage uh craft work that was in the original movie compared to the modern films which as much as i love them i do agree with one assessment where they said like they're intellectual fast and the furious movies but but again it's all about the heist right and that's what the whole show was built around in a way the heist movie all right. Well, that's good little information and context there on the production of Mission Impossible. Let's get Jeff back in here now, and we'll uh, we'll move towards the plot summary. Yeah, absolutely. I'm talk about the reception because I was going to say like yeah, we're yeah. doing the podcast almost to the day that it was released. Mm. That's true. true. We are. Yeah, we are doing it. Because it was May 22nd. It's the 24th, right? That's right. Yeah. So what are we, 24 years late? 24 years. I wonder what. Most of the day. Mm. I wonder, like, if the remaining surviving Mission Impossible cast would think of, like, the current Mission Impossible films, because I know they weren't a fan of the the first film from the get go, even before it was released, and Mm. even afterwards. Mm. Like, Martin Landau famously, like, trashed the movie, too, like, Mm. 2009 interview that he did with MTV. That yeah. is interesting. Now, to Josh, am I right in, in hearing what you'd said there that uh, David Kep was paid a million a million dollars for this film? Yeah, a million dollars to to even though like Robert Town has like uh-huh. the screenplay, like him and Zalian, uh, Kep and Zalian had the story credit, but because uh, they were the original people working on it, but Kep was kept along for another million, mm-hmm. I think, just to help Robert Town out, you know, just flesh things out. That to me is incredible and I think that might I mean without you know showing you my hand too early in this game I think 
that that $1 million may very well go down as the most overpaid million dollars that I have ever or could ever conceive. A million dollars for that screenplay just to hang around. Yeah. And, and, Holy and just, shit. And just imagine, you know, like, you know, they got that Golden Raspberry nomination for, like, wow. a film budget over. Yeah, yeah it's for true. Worst screenplay. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, I, I just, okay. I can't conceive of paying him a million dollars for this screenplay. And that was a million dollars in 1996. Just for the show how That's right. Was That's right, Jeff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But think about it. Like, Kemp was a big, was a big draw at that time. I mean, yeah, I, he was. Yeah, I get that. I do get and that. Stuff like that. And, yeah. So, I mean. And obviously, well, and, Cruz signed and, off and, and, on it as producer or co-producer. You know exactly, but the thing is, they still came in under budget, as I said. Mm. So. Well, yeah, and that's true, and that's the one thing I was going to say is that it, it's nice to see a film that can come in under budget and on time and do as well as. I think it's true of that. Mm. I think Obama was instrumental. Wow, well, in yeah, I, I think you're I'm, right. I'm, I'm um, under budget. But. What's what's cool about this film is I think this is really probably the first time. This is where I think, uh, and maybe you could maybe shed light. I don't know if you know this or not, but I have a feeling this is kind of where Cruz was like, I like doing stunts. I think I can do mm. this. Like this is where he wasn't just like he wasn't just like standing on an apple crate to be the same height as a woman. <laughs> and, 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 and and we all know that he likes to run. Uh, you can't avoid the people. short jokes, man. You just can't get rid of them. No. Um, you know, that would be a tall order. <laughs> um, but, uh, well, but we all, we all know that, equalize uh, he, it, you know, yeah, we all know that he likes to run and that he looks really good in film when he's running and, mm-hmm. and, uh, or yelling you know, so, or yelling or both or um, giving that intense cruise stare. Yeah. But, uh, but the whole thing with the, uh, the aquarium was very interesting and that, and I just think that maybe this this film kind of gave him that taste, you know, mm, whether yeah. it was the salt water or the explosive bubble gum. Uh, <laughs> so gotta, a restaurant, Scott, you, you've been to Prague. Did you see that restaurant in that town square? No, I did not. Um, but when we were watching this, because Sarah and I were there recently, um, I certainly recognized a lot of the area, but that restaurant was not there when we were there in 2012. Uh, I say recently, that's almost 10 years ago, but, um, no, there was a flood. <laughs> yeah, there was a flood. But it did look like a place where, uh, it, I mean, I thought that we were in that square. We were in that square all the time because that's very close to where we were staying. And they had Christmas market there when we were there. But um, we, I remember there being a tapas bar in that area, like a, a Spanish spot. Oh, nice. Yeah. I, I, do like not awesome rem- I do not remember that. And I loved how De Palma like, filmed it, too, with the cinematographer. Like. It almost sounded. It almost. He almost made it look almost surreal, almost with the but, fog and all of that. And but Josh, that wasn't yeah, a that yeah. wasn't a real restaurant. Oh no, no, not the restaurant. I'm talking about just like Prague in general, though. Oh, yeah. sorry, goodness, yes, yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I recognized a lot of places, and I think I think anybody who went who has been to Prague would recognize a lot of those places because they are seminal in film, as you were saying in your in your production notes. You know, I mean, it it kind of put Prague on the map, didn't it, in a way? It did. Yeah. Hey, and Jeff, you probably recognize like the uh, the the Charles Bridge, you know, the, the one where um, mm-hmm. Belps falls off of after yeah. being quote unquote yeah. shot. That th- that was in Spider Man Far From Home. That's the scene where like oh, MJ's, okay. where yep. MJ's talking to Peter, right? Yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. It just talks, was a lot darker. Talks about the whole gory. <laughs> yeah, she talks about the whole like gory history of like you know people's heads on pikes and stuff like mm-hmm. that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, look, guys, uh, before we start talking too much about the film and kind of giving our review, Josh, we got another little section here from you, right? A a prepared plot summary. 
Mm-hmm. So oh, yes. why, why don't we just do that? Why don't we just cut out again sure. for a few minutes, sit back and enjoy Josh uh, taking us yes. through this plot summary. Yes, time and... for a Agent Scully style like fitness <laughs> action right now. <laughs> and then and then we'll come back and we'll start talking about our money pennies. Paramount logo. Danny Elfman with the military beat ushering in Lalo's classic motif. The narrative drops a smack dab in the middle of a current IMF op in Kiev. We see security cam footage of Ethan Hunt in a rubber mask laying down the Michael Corleone blackmail. We see you, Brian Brian De Palma, with your references, complete with dead paramour on the bed to a Ukrainian perp. The op is being surveyed by Emilio Estevez's Jack Harmon. He begins to fret because the dead woman is starting to wake up, but Hunt increases the beatdown and extortion play on the thug, and they get what they want to know. The walls of the hotel room fall down like a movie set, because it is a movie set. How meta. Hunt pulls off his crap, crappy mask. They get better in the franchise to come, by the way. And a little jolt of adrenaline awakens the girl. She's Claire Phelps, another IMF agent. She asks if they got it. They did. Cue retro titles with Mission Impossible theme, conducted by Elfman. IMF team leader Jim Phelps, played by John Voight, is sitting on a plane and decides on the cinema of the, of the Ukraine. Cue a self-destruct tape with the current mission. Here's the facts. Through, through intel and a word of covert operation circling around a Job 314, some dude named Alexander Glitzen is going to infiltrate the American embassy in Prague and access the secret computer archive where the knock list is located. This is a list of all IMF operatives across the world, including their locations and their aliases. He plans to sell it to a buyer. The mission that they've chosen to accept, allow the infiltration, record it for posterity, and then trail Glitzen to his buyer and nab both of them. Pretty simple, right? Nothing can go wrong. Eden Hunt, later that evening. They're dead! My team is dead! Oh, dear. Before the above spoiler, we meet the IMF team at the Prague safe house. We meet the point man, Tom Cruise, played by Tom Cruise. Or, I mean, Eden Hunt, of course. There's Jack and Claire, who is Phelps' wife. Ooh, a la la, Jim. Then there's clearly Kristen Scott Thomas as Sarah Davies, who's having a flirt fest with Jack for maximum tragic pain effects slash emotional manipulation of the audience. And Hannah Williams. She's a quiet one. They get the op parameters in avuncular fashion from Phelps. They rib him for being too sedentary and enjoying the perks of the Drake Hotel in Chicago and then disc Claire's moonshine and coffee. Maybe this is a hint that Claire never gave a shit about her team members? Anyway, we get a brief mission set up and audio check. Jack gives Ethan exploding bubblegum and we learn that Tom Cruise or Ethan is going to be impersonating like Tom Cruise with makeup. Convenient. And so we come to the operation. It doesn't go well. In their guises, Eden and Sarah access the server room in the embassy with the help of Jack controlling the elevator by accessing the, the, the controls on top. As Phelps monitors the situation from his laptop in the safe house, Claire is waiting in the getaway car outside the embassy in her capacity as a driver. Eden and Sarah plant the camera slash glasses as the tag, tag Glitzen is monitored by the team. Sarah seems very obsessed with Jack's ass. They manage to avoid Glitzen after the usual interferences and record his theft. They sneak out the back door of the embassy, I guess, and proceed to fake make out as Glitzen exits the embassy. As they pretend snog, things go very, very wrong. Jack gets an elevator hydraulic through his face. Phelps is being pursued on the Charles Bridge, and upon hearing of Jack's death, Eden sends Sarah to shadow Glitzen. Eden is too late when he reaches the bridge, having seen the cam footage of Phelps' bloodstained hands leading to his limp plunge into the river. Eden is just in time to witness Hannah enter the passenger seat of Claire's car and be blown up by the explosive triggered within. He rushes back to find Sarah, but she's dead along with Glitzen, knifed. Eden rushes off, the pr- off as the Prague PD approaches, and he contacts IMF. 
Kit Rich, the voice on the tape, at the beginning puts up with Tom Cruise's dramatic acting and tells him they have to meet. So they meet, a gimmick, so they meet at a gimmick restaurant in the middle of town square. The restaurant is built around aquarium tanks. We meet Kit Rich. It's Henry Cherney, a.k.a. the guy with a penchant for portraying bureaucratic pricks in 90s political thrillers. Ethan blames himself. He has failed, but he's also stepped into Kit Rich's trap. The pictures snap around him. I mean, there are actual lobsters around him. The whole op was a mole hunt. Glitzen was IMF, and the list was a decoy. An arms dealer named Max is connected to exchanges of capital that tie to Ethan's family troubles, his late father's medical bills. Max has corrupted an agent with an IMF for the knock list. They think Ethan was a mole, but Ethan endures Kit Rich's accusations, but he's here to kick ass and chew bubblegum, but his gut is actually an explosive. Nathan aids an escape from an IMF chief and his hand-picked team that exploding water tanks everywhere. Soaked and escaped and scapegoated, Ethan makes his Tom Cruise run across the plaza and returns to the safe house, the IMF safe house. I bet IMF would even think to look for him in there. I mean, he can't be that stupid, right? Right. So Ethan returns to the safe house. Night trick with a light bulb. Hi, Brian De Palma. You sure love the Godfather, don't you? But before Bobby D shows up to whack the black hand, Ethan searches for clues and ends up in front of a laptop that Phelps was using. He accesses the internet, but the feds couldn't track him down, correct? An upcoming scene in the movie may disagree with that. Ethan remembers Kitridge mentioned Job 314, and he makes a connection with the Holy Bible. Now, of course, originally it said Job 13, not Job 314, but he grabs the Bible and finds Job 314, and he emails every Christian alt city slash geocities chat room on the internet. He sends to Max and CCs to suspension of disbelief. Ethan falls asleep with the nightmare of Jim Phelps as Morley's ghost, but is awakened by Claire Phelps. After some convincing and some outdated bond and treatment of women, he seems to accept Claire's story about the abort clause from Jim, but the awkwardness is conveniently interrupted by the arrival of an email from Max. Time for a meet. So off he even goes. But before he leaves, he learns that he's been disavowed. But still no boys from Langley creeping up the stairs of the IMF safe house with a computer that has access to the database with the rogue agent's user ID. Okay. Hey, it's Necros. Remember him from Living Daylights, BBNs? Yeah, that movie had a lot of villains. Anyway, his actor Andreas seems to have recovered from his broken neck at Nakatomi Plaza and is now working for Max, the arms dealer. He's at the meet with some pretty metal long black, some pretty metal long blonde hair. Eden gives a code phrase slash gesture and a limo pulls up and they throw Eden in the back and cover his face. Eden finds himself in the study of Max. He convinces her to remove his mask and it's Vanessa Redgrave. I wanted to call her Dame Vanessa Redgrave, but apparently she turned down her damehood. Regardless, Max is awesome. She figures Ethan is not is not Joe, but he wants a meeting with Joe, the so-called traitor, so he offers to get the knocklist for her. Kitridge let it spill that the knocklist was a, was a decoy and actually a CIA headquarters Langley, Virginia. He asked for $10 million in U.S. bearer bonds. Max doesn't quite believe him yet, so Hunt tells her to try the knocklist decoy he got from Glitzen's body. Oops, forgot to mention that earlier, but this movie is turning my mind into a pretzel. On her hard drive and Ring's hands frustratingly holding back a comic book guy tirade, watch the feds crawl out of the woodwork. Max takes the gamble, but prepares first. Kitridge and his man, Barnes, and his IMF team in tow soon arrive at the apartment, but Max and Al are gone. Returning to the safe house, Ethan plans his next move with Claire. He's hesitant about coming along with him, but she wants revenge for Jim. They need to put a team together. Claire knows a friend. So does Ethan. Cut to a private car on a plane or train or something, not sure. The rogue IMF team is expanding. There's a mercenary named Krieger, played by Jean Reno, in the only role that I've ever despised his character. Okay, he's a, he's a bit of an asshole in the Da Vinci Code. Then there's Luther Stickle, a disavowed IMF agent, and he's played by the awesome Ving Rhames, making him a hacker knowing how to go all medieval on GhostCon. As for the operation, they're going to infiltrate Langley and hack the secure CIA server room to obtain the knocklist. The team commandeers a fire truck while Luther is set up in a van to control the operation. Luther sets off fire alarms at CIA headquarters. Fire truck arrives with Ethan, Claire, and Krieger in disguise. The security guards accompany them to the location of the fire, and one is incapacitated by Ethan, and the other is nearly killed by Krieger. 
Here's the thing with knives, eh? Hmm, that sounds familiar. Meanwhile, William Donlow, the server room analyst, heads for a lunch break, and Clara, having doffed her firefighter uniform and posing as a DOD employee, uses her trick pen to squirt something in his, in his coffee. Meanwhile, in the operations room, Kitridge is contemplating Hunt's next move and doesn't appreciate the fire alarm. Also, meanwhile, Hunt and Krieger make their way into the ventilation shaft. They set themselves up over the server room, grading which they remove with delicacy as the server's room sensors are capable of picking up change of room temperature and even the most low decibel sounds. Donlow returns from lunch and enters the vaulted server room via security door and vomits in a trash can. Good job, Claire. Donald leaves the server room soil wastebasket in hand and heads for the head. Cue iconic lowering into the server chamber with stunning acrobatics. The tether line is taut enough to guide Eden like a marionette to the computer controls without having to worry about touching the ground and setting off the sensors. Meanwhile, Krieger is apparently allergic to rats or scared of them. Not sure. There's a couple of intense moments of Krieger dropping the line and Eden catching his sweat and Donlow almost returning to the chamber and then having to puke again. Finally, Eden is able to hack the CPU and get the knock list via Luther's instructions and narrowly escapes detection when he's pulled back to the ventilation in the ceiling. Krieger detaches the knock list disc from Eden and drops his knife into the chamber. It doesn't hit the ground, but when Donlow sees it, he knows he's fucked. Meanwhile, Eden, Krieger, and Claire follow return from the vents and CIA exit checkpoints back to the fire truck because everyone trusts firefighters. Donlow is double fucked when Kitridge sends him to Alaska. The team miraculously makes it back across the pond to London, where Claire finds them an old safe house to squat. Krieger still has a disc, but Tom Cruise's acting in Robert Town's script allows Eden to play a double bluff on Krieger. As Krieger storms out the fool that he is, Eden finds a Bible on the ground, stamped the Gideons of the Drake Hotel, Chicago. Uh-oh. Then a local BBC reports Eden's mother and uncle busted for drug trafficking. Kittridge at work. Eden takes off to find a payphone to yell at Kittridge and keeps himself on the line enough for IMF to know he was in London. That's because he knows that Jim Phelps is alive and able to maintain his surprise when Phelps confronts him moments later. Over coffee, Phelps explains to Eden that it was Kittridge who shot him and set them up all the while Eden flashed back in his mind palace that it was Phelps all along, and that Claire may or may not have detonated the explosive in the car to kill Hannah. One thing is finally made clear, however, and it totally took me by surprise, that Krieger was the one that stabbed Glitzen and Sarah. And it was Jim that killed Jack by activating the spike at the top of the shaft. Eden is still not sure on Claire. He tells him Max, he tells him Jim that Max is going to deliver Job to him. Kittridge, once he gives her the list, the meet will be on the TGV train the next day. He's going to meet Phelps in Paris. That's the plan. But not really. Eden returns to the safe house and Claire keeps up the pretense that Jim is dead and so does Eden because he doesn't want her to know he's alive yet. Claire reinforces that pretense by, quote unquote, seducing Eden. Eden takes the bait. I mean, the next day is somewhat interesting. Max and her goons are waiting on the train. Luther is hacking them a few feet away. Phelps is clearly sitting in a private car, putting a gun together from Mysterio. Claire is sitting in another car. Kittridge and Barnes have boarded the train, having arrived in London and coordinated with MI5 to take Eden's bait. Claire gets a message from someone and gets up from her seat. Luther sends Mac to Knox list. She's spotted by Kittridge as she heads towards the baggage car as per the message. It's Phelps. She starts talking to him. Yep, she knows. Or does she? Not everything. Phelps removes his face. He has a mask, but still. It's Eden. Phelps shows up from behind and makes Claire feel like shit. Used by both these two men, but she, like her husband, who planned all this in a, is a psycho who makes terrible coffee so she can die in a fire. As Phelps' gun in hand takes the user U.S. bearer bonds and gloats, he stupidly lets Ethan put on his glasses and reveal to Kittridge's Dick Tracy watch that Phelps is indeed alive. A struggle ensues. Phelps kills Claire. The bonds go flying. Ethan actually feels bad for her and pursues Phelps to the roof of the train. It's really windy up there. It gets extra tur extra turbulent out, out when Krieger shows up in a helicopter. Yes, that's right. Phelps inches his way to the back of the train in his tactical gear, complete with suction cups, and makes a leap for the helicopter's pontoons. The train has entered into the tunnel now, and Krieger attempts to behead Ethan with the helicopter blades, but Ethan manages to slip under the blade when the chopper bumps against the side of the tunnel. Very realistic. 
Ethan jumps to other pontoon and delivered justice to his team by slapping some Wrigley's on the chopper's windshield. He then uses the momentum of the train's wake to leap atop of the, of the chopper as it explodes, thus ruining Krieger and Phelps' very no good bad day. Inside, Luther had led Kittredge to Max. Mission accomplished. After enjoying some suds in Paris or Ireland, Dolores or Reardon's lovely lilt illuminates, uh, this illuminates the growing friendship of Ethan and Luther. Hey, maybe Luther could show up in the next film. But then things come full circle for Ethan. We leave him sitting on a plane and offer the cinema of the Caribbean as his in-flight movie. Cue Layla Schifrin's score, and so begins a franchise where Tom Cruise will find new ways to cheat death. And sometimes logic. Right, Josh, good plot summary there, buddy. I, I cannot imagine wanting more information on that narrative, okay? But I, I, I do think it's important to pick up on something, Jeff, just off air. I know you were, you were saying something about you watching a lot of Mission Impossible and this film kind of bringing you back to that. Do you just want to cushion in there before our money penny scoring and say a few things about your relationship with the series or the films or whatever? Oh, it's funny. So I had I had watched the original film uh, probably in '97 or any on VHS somewhere, and then I've seen it obviously on uh, on television over the last 24 years a few times. Um, I really enjoyed the 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 film with Tom Cruise, and it's so funny that I completely and I don't know why I totally forgot this, but. Uh, obviously, I, I enjoy espionage and all that. Everyone knows that. Mm. As a kid, I always wanted to be a spy. If you ask me, like throughout, like you know, like those those early years of me as a kid, I wanted to be like a toy maker and a puppeteer and a spy. I and I and and <laughs> have you achieved and either I, of those? I, uh, <laughs> I I can't tell you that. I can't. Tell you. Uh, I can't. I have to kill you. Yeah. Uh, no. <laughs> but um, and I realize. One of the main reasons why I was really into espionage and spy stuff is I used to watch reruns of Mission Impossible. Mm. Mostly, I'm going to say, I can't, I can't give you specifics, but I'm going to say it was the, the 88 to 90 reboot. Okay. But I know that I had seen some of the 60s and 70s reruns. And I used to watch was it. Wasn't Leonard Nimoy on the original series, I believe? There was. A, I looked it up, and he was in a couple of seasons as a recurring character, yes. That's mm -hmm. cool. That's one yeah. reason to go back and try to watch those shows. Also, also Sam Elliott, without white hair what? and a mustache. Wow. Yeah. And he looks... Well, he's very handsome. Let me just mm -hmm. put it this way. He, yeah. Oh, he's a good-looking guy. But he still has the Sam Elliott kind of Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, Sam Elliott at 29 is very handsome because Sam Elliott at 77 or 70, whatever the hell he is now, uh -huh. is still very handsome. So, yeah. I so, remember on Parks and Recreation, Sam Elliott was like the anti-Ron Swanson. And yeah. yeah. He's like a total, like, hippie and stuff. <laughs> yeah, no, which is awesome. But, so good. Uh, Anyways, but I get getting back to Mission Pot. Yeah, that that show. Like I one, I just I loved the theme. I, like I just loved it, and I remember coming home and watching, uh, you know, different. episodes with my dad, and I just loved the espionage and like the masks and and all that kind of stuff. I I really enjoyed it, and it was one show that I I always really liked, and and I, I remember I used to like put on coats and you know like trench coats, and I would have my little notepad, and if something happened at the, like we something happened at the park my buddy would tell me we'd have our little like spy notepads and try and figure out what happened and and all that kind of stuff and that was 
Uh, you know, I, I and I would have to say that uh, Mission Impossible was a, uh, was one of the main reasons why. And then obviously the, at the same time, I would be watching the Bond films with my dad. So, but I would have to say Mission Impossible was a, was a key factor in why I enjoyed espionage and and Spycraft and Spycraft. Yeah, exactly. Um, and to get back to this film, I think this is a really good like as much as like yeah we were talking about how the original cast panned it and all that kind of stuff, but it's a very important film and if you look at it, it's still iconic and it's uh, and like we were saying before about how this franchise has kind of gotten stronger as it goes on and it's been around for quite some time, um, but I think it, as much as this film is feels dated obviously because of the technology and the computers. Uh, I, I think though, if you look at the spycraft and uh, and uh, it was it was it was very good and mm-hmm. it would mm-hmm. must have been eye opening for for just people watching it then being like wow you could do all that and I mean you know and if they're showing it in that's the that's the way I think of it is if if you if they're showing this stuff in films. <laughs> what are they not showing you that mm-hmm. they can do? And even back in like the early nineties, because this is still, you know, very a very short period of time after the fall of the Berlin Wall, and, and you know, um, and if you look at a Prague, like this is a year after the Czechoslovakia was split, mm-hmm. or yeah. almost at the same time. So this is a big deal. So when you're so seeing all this. Could open up in areas like that in the former Soviet Union, right? So they could film in those places again. That's the whole yeah. Thing so that, that exactly. So this is a that's a very interesting time for that kind of uh, you know uh, kind of film and especially filming these kind of areas and, and this type of film. So this is all very interesting stuff with this film, and I, I really enjoyed it. But I have to say that oh, sorry, we'll get into that when we do the uh, when our, we do our money pennies, but our uh, money pennies. I just want to pick yes. up on something you're saying about the spycraft. Um, and, and in fact, actually, first, what I want to do is ask you guys something about the technology that you mentioned, Jeff, because, you know, watching this now, 25 years in the future, it's easy to criticize the computers and kind of and what they're doing with it. You know, like, oh, well, how, you know, you, you can't take today's technological brain and go back and criticize a film from 25 years ago. I think that's ridiculous. No. Right. But no. I, do, I do wonder. Do you guys think that there's a boldness in the way that technology is used in this film compared to how people use technology in today's films? Like, I'm trying to picture, I I just think that there's an element of realism or verisimilitude that people want to capture with today's films. Whereas in the past, it's like computers, we've got a little idea what they can do. So let's just go fucking balls to the wall crazy about it. They're magic boxes. They're magic boxes. Yeah. Yeah. Like, do do you think that people, I I think that this film was really experimental, uh, really adventurous in what technology actually offered people to do like how quickly files were downloaded yeah. for one thing I, I, we know I, I, we know I, I, yeah. that files did not up and download as quickly as this right well, that's, even that's, even yes. then but it just feels like the way technology is used here is fast and quick and adventurous and very like just suspend your disbelief and go with it whereas today i think because there is a much greater awareness of technology i think well, that yeah. filmmakers are more cautious am i right in saying that uh, that's less true I, absolutely it's like but i also every- found it kind of funny like when uh, in the first scene where you meet Luther and he's excited about getting 686. Yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) That's that's the kind of thing where, like, when you talk about that kind of stuff in films, it's always going to be dated. It doesn't matter, like, if you talk about a computer nowadays and you give the the highest specs you could possibly get, that, you know, that makes it contemporary and, and impressive today, but... You know, the cranberries are timeless, though. We have to agree. There you go. Well, yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Well, but um, mm-hmm. yeah. What, what I, else? I what else were you going to say there, Jeff? 
Oh, no, I was going to say, I think you're right. I think it's it, um, back then it was kind of like, oh, look, you know, computers like people now have computers. Everyone has them in the home and, and computers are, are more widely used. But at the same time, it's just kind of like they didn't it, what people weren't as I mean, as much as people were getting familiar with computers and uh, people had computers in their houses since the 70s and 80s and mm-hmm. people were more comfortable. But it still wasn't the same as today where everyone kind of has some kind of almost tech support or most people do to an extent or have that knowledge themselves on how to fix those things exactly exactly learn online yeah there was no anonymous back then or or 4chan or or stuff like that right like yeah i mentioned in my summary about you know geo cities and alt or whatever like how many internet sites did exist at that time to make it actually believable that cruise would eventually hit the right job 314 website to get a response back right (laughs) and to be honest he probably wouldn't have had there probably wouldn't have been that many at that point but nowadays sure right but, i mean so, it has nothing to do with the fact that like he was using like an internet service probably provided by the imf in general and they could general. not track him down but i'll get in that you know i'll get yeah. into that yeah exactly and i was waiting to see like okay. when they would go into like the cia like mainframe database or something and it would say you visited this site this site like 10 times or something <laughs> like the counter in the top right anyways like yeah, you're more the merrier uh website Scott? Yeah, that that brings me back to the good old days of uh, yeah, web. You know, the, the lofty heights, gentlemen, the lofty heights of web page design. Yeah. The what I wanted to really thing. see, though, what I really wanted to see is like in the in the scene with you know um, with uh, Galitzin. Mm-hmm. Or no, sorry, in the um, oh my gosh, at Langley, I was really hoping to see like the guy who uh, was on the computer there. I William wanted Donlow? to see like his yeah, sorry, Donlow. Sorry, I just couldn't yeah. remember his name. Uh, it was that he had. He was using like a, uh, an AOL CD for his coffee coaster. That's what I was hoping to see, but I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys, guys, listen. Let's let's just do this, okay? Let's get into our money yes. pennies here, because we we're basically here anyway. We are. We're, we're talking about this film, so we are here. So I'm gonna take off my fanboy hat and put on my critical hat now. Good. Although Good I kind of already had it half on. Mm-hmm. like something anyway <laughs> right well let's let's start with story we've, we've got oh i mean it's been a while since we did a film review we've had a few episodes in between yeah. the end of let's season talk about one, our money so, penny scoring yeah. yes we got story we got acting and we got atmosphere uh up to Great. 10 money pennies each that's it that's Worst done talked about it. And James Bond films. <laughs> yeah we've talked about it okay that's our scoring currency and we're going to give these <laughs> uh, we're going to give these components up to 10 so why don't we start talking about story I got your plot summary, Josh, and I'm glad I got your plot summary, but story didn't really seem to matter to anybody in this movie. No. It didn't. Not particularly. No, it didn't. I think that was actually like its weakest part, to be honest with you. Oh, it it, it was. How weak? Do you want to hear my take first? Yeah, please. Give us your take on story. So I love me a good complex spy story, but I fear lovers Mm. of that particular genre would enjoy this film more than the average moviegoer. Mm. The film tries to surprise us at every character and plot logic in, in it trying, and, and it's trying too hard to do so. By keeping us in the dark about certain character actions and motivations, it becomes first frustrating, and to some, it could be considered condescending. As much as everything is explained in the end, I am left somewhat dissatisfied with the outcome. On the surface, I am glad he even made it through all that, and I did you know, find certain sequences suspenseful, and I can relish him and Luther enjoying a brewski at the end. 
Mm. I never got the feeling that Eden learns anything in the film, however. Looking mm. back at the franchise, I can attribute this as early as, I guess, as early in the year with IMF, yeah. and maybe a cautionary tale about trusting our mentors, forgetting that they're human or rendered inhuman in Phelps' case. But the initial shock of losing his team is the only moment of humility for Eden. And mm, while yeah. his reaction to this scene quite well, the story doesn't give us that emotional or relatable feel no. to those consequences. And though their motivations are explained, uh -huh. and Claire still remain enigmas to me. Uh -huh. The movie wants to be a spy movie and a summer blockbuster. Pick one. To quote yeah, Peter, yeah. it <laughs> insists yeah. upon itself. And I'm not talking yeah. about the couple of references that the Palma makes in the film. Mm. It is mm. very apparent in the formal construction of the film that the script was polished around the action sequences yeah. during the you know, during his conception. Overall, I grudgingly admit that for all their great Robert Town dialogue and some mm -hmm. solid character scenes interwoven with fantastic camera work and montage, pushing the suspense and action to the yeah. tilt, style somewhat trumps substance for me in this film. Mm -hmm. Seven oh, out yeah. Of for sure, for sure. Seven out of ten. Okay, well, I... I that's okay. maybe, wow. That's yeah. maybe a little generous on my part. I think that's a bit generous. But... Well, I agree, with, I agree with what you're saying. I'm particularly picking up on what you said there about the... Um, um, uh, shit, what was it that you said? I liked it. Fuck, <laughs> <laughs> I don't even remember. I don't even remember now. But uh, obviously, no, 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 no. Um, what was it you were saying? Uh, yeah, summer blockbuster versus um, spy film. Like, pick one. Yeah, I think you're right. I think the film story does get lost in this. Like, is it just trying to impress a fun audience, or is it actually looking to do something clever with the genre? And this was a big struggle for me. I'm watching this movie, man. And I found it really convoluted. And I think that when you add that type of complexity, you know, that type of complexity for the for the sake of being clever, right? Because that's what this film's trying to do. It's adding complexity for the sake of being clever. But if it doesn't have an emotional hook and if you don't get characterization, then what you've got is a bunch of shelled characters that you don't care about. Archetypes, who's, basically. Who, whose lives just get more and more complex. And that is, for me, is a big problem. Like, this is, to me, right? Like, uh, the film's recipe on story and characterization just kind of feels like, okay... I'm going to give you something, but I'm not going to develop it for you. I'm going to continue to complicate this undeveloped character and situation <laughs> for you with more curveballs, with more shit. And you should care about him and you should care about her and you should care about them as a team and you should feel the pressure of their situation. Uh, no, I, I can't unless you're giving me a reason to know how these people came together. Yeah. Give me a yes. reason to care yeah. for Tom Cruise. Give me a reason to care, and then I will care I, I when they're in pressured Emilio. situations. I cared about it. I did. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, and yeah, I actually liked one, how, they yeah. have, how they set up like a possible romance between him and Sarah, Chris Scott Thomas' yeah. character. But I think that was mm -hmm. just to amp up the tragedy of the whole C sequence, right? So I, I think you're right. I, yeah. I loved Emilio Estevez in that short. But I was like, yeah, you know what? Because Emilio Estevez. He, I like him in a lot of things, and I thought, I thought, wow, you know what? This would be great to have him in a film in the in the mid '90s where he was kind of like stagnant. And I really appreciated his hey, character. Man, and I liked his, but yeah. <laughs> well, okay, true, that's true. But in a different role like this, I liked his sort of like cockiness as the tech guy. Mm -hmm. He had good chemistry, and I. I I really enjoyed that. And I thought, obviously, you know. Um, yeah, he did have good he, chemistry, he got, but come on, Jeff, man. Like, see, know, that's, see that scene at the beginning, right, where they're all sitting around the table. 
and yeah. they're all like doing that sort of fake laugh and stuff. That was cringy. Like I didn't feel I didn't feel like Fun. any of them were actually pally. <laughs> it just felt like a bunch of actors saying lines to me. Yeah. It, it didn't yeah, feel yeah. to me like oh these guys have known each other. Like there's that there's that sort of horsey smile that Tom Cruise gives, you know, which is just a little bit too much for me. I. I mean, uh, I hear what you're but saying, maybe those it was guys. Tom Cruise that might have probably is, is kind of maybe was was the one that kind of maybe made that scene more apparent. Because I found that was it pro- felt like I found a like, 90s I found the earlier team <laughs> dynamic. I thought that was like the most like emotional part of the storyline. Like I actually like liked the dynamic of all those characters in that sequence. Like That's, it seemed like it was yeah. working towards something. And then yeah. once they killed them all off, like I was just like, even just basically well, Trump is was... negotiating who he trusts throughout the movie, and I, it loses that team dynamic and that sense of fun. You know what I mean? Yes, exactly. I agree with you. The beginning of yeah. the film is is fun um yeah it is kind of fun i I didn't care much for what they were trying to do with the whole pre-title sequence now maybe jeff and josh you guys can tell me did mission impossible have sort of uh pre-title sequences like that Uh, i don't know about the tv show but like the movie's kind of it just it just felt to me like it was kind of in the middle of an operation essentially yeah okay right well because yeah. then then they had that sort of flashing oh my god i'm gonna have a stroke type sep episode where you <laughs> yeah. you know leading into the the titles right and it was well the, the the titles is clearly like it's a retro it's a basically a nod to like the titles of the original tv series right yeah well yeah but but that that flashing strobe thing that brought us into it that was like the segue into the uh that was fucking bright man that brought us into the credits <laughs> it was it was <laughs> but but I, I i guess i'm getting it doesn't really matter i just think that what what you're saying about the team at the beginning okay maybe yeah i, I like that whole thing I, I thought that was interesting i was engaged with it did i feel that they were a tight team that i got to care about no of course not it's the beginning of the film i, I you know you're not developing anything in that in that moment but i feel like once yes. you kill everybody off well, then, you're, the then you're left on the on the good faith of the tom cruise movies you've seen before where you know that he's a hero you know that he's a good guy yes. you know that you just have yes. to cheer for him now as the lone wolf yeah and it's kind of like it's, well it's lame you gotta, you gotta make me care about this this character before I'm gonna chase. I'm not just gonna chase him because Top Gun yeah, was fun. Because yeah, I had no go. doubt whatsoever. You know, I had no besides me enjoying like you know the the usual, you know the, those touches of the the spy genre which I normally love. I mean, I like the idea just like being in watching a spy movie. Like mm-hmm. I love just watching spy movies in general. So mm-hmm. that that part, you know, I could enjoy on a purely surface level. Right. But yeah. I, okay, you know, I catch like, you. I had I no doubt you. that Tom Cruise I had no doubt that Tom Cruise would figure out this would figure out the situation mm-hmm. that he was in. Right? Like uh and the movie tries to hint for example that, you know, perhaps it was actually Kitridge played by Henry Trinity mm-hmm. who was the bad guy all along. Yeah. But like you know for a fact the way that how the Trini plays a role that and seeing yeah. you know that type of archetype movies that Trini is just the ambitious career man who's just doing his job basically. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. I I didn't um, again like I I remember Cherney from Clear and Present Danger where he's playing. It's a almost the same. Role. It's almost the same character really. Like except he's maybe a little more. I don't know. It's a little more ambiguous anxious. in this one. I think. Yeah, but, and that was that was of course. The, deliberate because we can't know people's true motivations until mm-hmm. they reveal everything in the end right in the third act yeah, yeah. anyway I'll, look, I'll, ju- I'll just finish up with what i'm trying to say about story because mm-hmm. i realize I'm, i want to talk about it no it's not you i just realized i want to talk about henry charney for a few minutes but i don't really want to do that yet but you know uh, you mentioned roger ebert josh in your production notes and yeah. um I-, I read his review on this because i respect ebert i know we used him dug into his uh, back catalog there with the bond series and i disagree wholeheartedly he, he says that 
he says that this film you just got to go along with because it's a movie that that operates in the instant and i'm disappointed i don't agree with with i don't agree with reviews and sentiments like that and i know that ebert was a popular reviewer he was not, not so much dismissive i think he wants to give films a fair shake and i respect him for that but i don't agree that movies which are poorly cut and edited and ask the audience to make enormous leaps in continuity like like he does like when like De Palma does when he's like right so how did they get out of how did they get out of Lang like oh that doesn't matter let's just put them on a fucking fire truck and fire away truck. they go yeah. you know like yeah. as I mentioned in my summary the fire truck still has to go through CIA checkpoints in order to get out yeah. right yeah, yeah, so yeah. like so obviously they would go check the fire and then mm-hmm. of course where the fire was headed they would find the security guards and then the firefighters would have had to be right. stopped and maybe I'm sure what would happen is Krieger would have just killed the, the security guards and they would show off probably. Yeah, so, that, that, that part, yeah, no. <laughs> so no. I do agree with you that, like, the logic of them getting out of the CIA technically mm-hmm. you know, yeah. that. But, but, I mean, here's the thing. If there's a fire, like, you know how we pull across... Yes, I understand. If there's a fire, you're not going to be looking for people who have broken in. But, you know... At the, and this, the... was, this was before 9-11 too, right? So maybe it, it was different, but... Well. Yeah, that may, maybe oh. things were a little bit more lax and a little bit easier. Yeah. But I, I guess getting back to Ebert's review, I, I just don't agree that movies which ask the audience to make enormous leaps in continuity just get a, a free pass because they're fast action films. They they live in the moment. Therefore, just give them a pass and don't worry about the story. <laughs> I, I think that audiences really deserve more than that. And I also That's disagree. Fair. I also disagree as an audience member that I that I need to lower my standards in story and narrative and just go along with it because it's shiny and it's fast and it's slick. And it's got yeah. Tom Cruise. Like, I don't, I, yeah. I don't just because no. the movie is fucking fast and shiny doesn't mean that we're allowed to throw away and pass it on, on story because that's just what they wanted us to do. I think it's yeah. lazy. I think it's dumb. And for me, you know, like you want, you want me to care about the characters. Well then give me a reason to care about them. I'm, I'm not going to roll with your story just because it's fast and care about your characters. Like, to be fair though, Ebert has a four star system from what it seems. So yeah, he does. And he gave like, this three stars. Like th- it seems like his three stars can either be like, can range between maybe like a C plus or a C to like a B plus. That's, and then it all depends upon the tone of his review. I wonder if that's how Robert, you know, how Rotten Tomatoes would interpret it anyways. But maybe look, man, there's, there's no stakes in this movie for me because I'm not given any character so, information or any so history. Would you say that this is a, would you say this is like a D movie or is this like a C minus or like a, 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 a C movie? I gave I gave it a four out of ten, and I, I was being generous because I, did, I the only thing I knew from the beginning of the film was that John Voight was bad. I knew that just because it's fucking John Voight, and <laughs> like you know he, he's you know it's not Midnight Cowboy, okay, fine, but he's yeah. he's bad, right? You know he's bad, and he, four out of ten I thought was was fine because the narrative didn't make me. It didn't allow me to care for the characters. There were no stakes in this for me because I, I'm not invested in the history of the team uh, as a as a one off. Again, guys, I'm the guy who's coming into this without knowing anything about Mission Impossible and not not having the experience with it. I, I don't have any time to linger or settle into a relationship. Uh, they kill off the team at the beginning, and then I'm watching Tom Cruise on the good faith of firing away and uh, whatever other fucking movies he's been in, Top Gun, and uh, you know that type of you know I I, I can't just roll with it because because I, I, I'm supposed to have good faith for this type of genre and this type of storytelling. Like the only time I actually feel anything for Tom Cruise in this movie is when his parents are arrested as a ploy to get him to come out again. Like, but he, but he kind of uses that again. Yeah. Too, he he right? uses because, that against them. And yeah. I'm really, I'm really just more angry at him than I am compassionate because he's actually a selfish dick for creating that situation for his parents in the first place. And, <laughs> 
Um, yeah. There's, there's just. I think the only character in here who I actually cared about or felt a bit of sympathy for was uh, Donlo. He gets fucked over big time. I mean, he gets sick. He does. <laughs> he gets sick, and then apparently, then apparently, he gets sent off to Alaska because <laughs> immaturely it's concurred that he's responsible for this somehow or, or no but you know everybody has to have a fall guy and this guy's he just happened to be at the station yeah or yeah. not at the station basically like Kitridge uses him to cover up like uh, yeah. his, his uh, lack his, of uh, that's right or, and that's not suffering. that's yeah. not fair because yeah. the guy the guy wasn't even in the room when the security yeah. breach happened and I I don't know anyway I know I'm going on with this fun <laughs> But I'm I'm forward a ten on story because I thought it failed as a turn on the film and be entertained. I wasn't engaged in the characters. I mm-hmm. didn't care about the team atmosphere apart from maybe a few instances at the beginning. I had no investment in the action because it moved too quickly and it was cut too quickly for me. You know, I'm not trying to influence anybody's decision making. There will be legions of people who disagree with me, mm-hmm. but four out of ten for me. I, I, on the back of this film, I'm not interested in watching any other. Mission Impossible movie. If this is what I oh, need as my drug in, that, you know. But okay, I, okay, but I get it. I mean, if you really don't like the, the this one, like then you're like, why should I try to watch? Yeah, that's what I mean. Now. Like, if you yeah, guys, like, okay, if you guys recommend the other ones like, to me, like, I will go watch the other ones. I yeah. definitely will. But if this is what you're saying to a fan, this will get you into the other ones. I have no interest in ever watching this uh, movie again. So I got no interest in ever watching the other movies. ones built based on the yeah. story. Okay. We haven't got, okay. we haven't got okay. to the other that's areas. That, that's, what about, that's perfectly fair. That's what about you, Jeff? Fair. What about you, buddy? Uh, so, story, I, I'm going five and a half, six, and that's that's pretty generous. Um, the thing is, is like we were saying, yeah, I mean, I liked the very beginning when you had that, that little team powwow, and you could see, okay, there's a cool team. They kind of have a nice dynamic, and then it they, mm-hmm. <laughs> they all die. It's like, well, you were just sort of, we were just getting intrigued by this dynamic yeah. and then and then you just take it all away mm-hmm. and and like that can so work. you up the ante you gotta yeah you gotta that's the thing is that that's you, the thing. you gotta it's make like, it better than you, already what you, it is yeah exactly if you do that you really gotta work at, mm-hmm. at something and make it special to be like look we just did this took it away and now we're gonna give you something even more special they didn't do that it was hollow it was like it was like a chocolate egg where like it's all decorated on the outside and then you just break into it and then it's hollow inside. You're like, <laughs> really? I paid twenty five dollars for this. Uh, <laughs> and so there's nothing inside the egg. Like it's good chocolate, but like I thought there's yeah. gonna be something inside at least. And they dress mm-hmm. it up with like good dialogue sequences, you know, between like crews yeah. between yeah, like crews exactly. and yeah. Yeah. like, you know, at the coffee scene, or even, you know, the whole like scenes with like you know, we'll get Vanessa Redgrave because she has exactly. adds gravitas and mystery, you know, and stuff like that. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that. I'm glad you mentioned that because see that scene at the end with him and um, what's his name Uh, with Cruz and Ving Rhames, right? I liked I liked that scene at the end, and I felt I felt that if the relationship had been built, if if I'd actually got to know them, you know, or or like that would have been great. But I think I think in the spirit of being cool and fast and moving fast and like this guy knows this guy and this guy knows that girl and she knows him and boom, just believe it, just believe it. I feel like then you got a quiet scene of friends sitting at a table. It just it felt really jarring to me. Like I didn't see any of this anywhere else in the film, and now oh, you want me to swallow it. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. You have two, you have two little instances of, of where chemistry is is good, and then mm-hmm. but every everywhere else it's flat, and that's a problem. And I think yeah. that's a that's a large part of the issue with this film. This film is mostly like 
'90s example of of CGI and and uh, and, and stunts, right? I mean, that's what we. This is what this is. This is like a, a playground for the technology and and stunts and uh, all that kind of stuff. And the story definitely falters, and it's it's mediocre at best here. So do you, uh, Jeff, do you agree with Ebert and the other critics Josh cited or at least generalized by saying most of them gave three out of four? Do you agree that you just got to go with this story to enjoy it? Yeah. You enjoy it in the moment, but, th- but enjoy that's it. You kind of forget honestly, Enjoy it in the moment, right. But I'll, right. I'll be honest with you. Watching this film again, I it wasn't as good uh, watching it again. Like, I was like, okay, yeah, I can see the flaws. Like I feel like it, it didn't, yeah. it didn't hold up as, as well. Like I know it's older and I can, again, like I always say this, like I don't have a problem watching an old film mm-hmm. and just, you know, watching it like I'm watching it when it came out. But That's right. It, yes. it definitely did not hold up well to me. And I can see a lot of holes and, and, and the, you know, editing and stuff yeah, like that. Like- so, it my was, soapbox is my cross, right? I mean, I, I'm not trying to get anybody else to get on that soapbox. No, but but this is I, something that a lot of people say it doesn't matter. And maybe it matters for me in a way that it maybe shouldn't. Maybe, I don't know, there's something but, you know, I, no, I need to loosen up a bit when I watch these. But it no. really bothered me. This well, story here's the me thing. Yeah. That you're, you're watching it also from a very critical viewpoint yeah. because you're doing this podcast. Like, if you had just caught that, like, on TV randomly in the middle of the night, like, and you just watch it, you know, like, while you're drinking a beer or something... You wouldn't really be thinking well, too much about okay, it in that fashion, okay. right? But, I, you know, I, I, I accept that. But I'm not sitting down with a pince-nez yeah. and, you know, like, a, you know, a, a Rolodex <laughs> of notes. I mean, I'm sitting with my yeah. wife. We're eating chips and having a cocktail. Like, I'm watching this okay. movie to enjoy it. I want to enjoy yeah. it. But, yeah. uh, you know. But like, like I was saying, with my five and a half, six, again, that's pretty generous. But it, it was definitely lacking in the story. Uh, and I was just like, okay, well, you know, it's, it is what it is. Mm-hmm. Um but uh, it, it definitely could have been better. And again, I'm watching this, you know, for the first time in quite some time. I was like, it didn't hold up very well for me. And the story I thought was quite, quite, quite lacking. And again, I just felt like this is more just, uh, you know, CGI and special effects as well. But, but a few moments ago, Jeff, you were talking about Spycraft. You said that the Spycraft is really good. Can you give well, us no, a few examples I mean. of what you liked so, about yes. it? Well, okay. So the Spycraft, like... I like sort of like you know the little hairspray like the dye and the mm-hmm. glasses I like that kind of stuff which I thought was neat I mean that's not super super technical but I thought like the the is it Bond were... derivative or is it its uh, own thing it is is it is it Q branch or is it its own thing oh I, I could I see was, I would say it's Mission I, Impossible like the television series that's what I would say but is yeah. that Bond derivative you said it was yes. Yes, in a way it is, of yeah, course. I would, right. I would say so. So we're yeah. dealing with something so it, that, that, that that's kind of built from that tree. It's a branch of that tree. Well, yeah. And again, that goes to me on my problem with this in terms of genre. It's like, is it a spy movie? Mm-hmm. Are you doing like a, a Jean Le Carrère, like, you know, the spy who came in from the cold, dealing with like right. post-Cold War in Prague and, you know, like teams being killed off, you know, like in a really kind of sinister kind of way? Or are you also trying to make a summer blockbuster like a Bond movie or something like something like that, right? Yeah. And it's, yeah. it's like it's it's trying to negotiate that, and it's just and that's I think is where it kind of where the movie kind of falls apart mm. logically. Um, it's like stylistically, you know, there's some great camera work and some editing that's or montage that's good in there. But at the same yeah, time, I noticed that too. I noticed a lot of low angle shots and you know montage and, and stuff. And the close ups too, like I like mm-hmm. the whole scene like in the aquarium with Kitridge and uh, Eden. Like when the, all the close-ups and just the intensity of that sequence, when kind of like mm. where, where uh, as I mentioned in my summary, like Kittredge, you know, he, 
he lays the trap for he didn't step into hmm. and then he slowly closes it around him you know like yeah. that, that was the part of the movie that i really liked but i was missing the fun i guess i in my opinion that's what yeah. i was missing from this movie and the character interactions you, you, yep you, you know like it's like there's it's not a, everyone like, cold yeah, yeah. exactly like, think about like in rogue nation for example uh, there's yeah. a scene where like uh simon Pegg and even are just like even it's just been just been basically brought brought back to life via shock paddles. Okay. And just driving a car, and then Simon Pegg's in the car with them. And meanwhile, even and Vi- at, meanwhile, Jimmy Renner's character and King Rain's character are looking for him, and they and they they're, they're and they just randomly run into each other, and then it's like and then it's just a whole kind of like those coincidences, you know, like just fun as opposed to say you know, uh, these little hints of possible dynamic of character. Okay. I'm going back to what Scott was saying about about that whole sequence about how you, you kind of didn't buy them as, as a team, and I'm kind of seeing that a bit more now. And one thing I realized is that while if we follow through the movie with these characters all the way through, we could get to know them know them better. Mm-hmm. But to me, it's like, oh yeah, so they so they they put a good team together. Right. I mean, yeah. They got since Scott Thomas, and they got Emilio Estevez, and they got Tom Cruise, and they got John Wayne. Okay, mm-hmm. that's a pretty yeah. cool spy team, and that has yeah. potential. But then that's all you see. That's, about that's it. all you see. Yeah, it's the surface only. Exactly. All right. Well, well I think Jeff... we eviscerated the story pretty much here. So uh... <laughs> yeah. Was there anything else, Jeff? You want to say on story before we move on? No. No. That's it. Okay. I think we. I think we did it justice. Okay. Well, you want, ac- acting. You want to be point man on the acting? Sure. Right. Go ahead. Uh, man. Act- Acting, I gave it about five and a half. I think that's generous again too. Like, I mean, I liked I, I like Tom Cruise, and I like I mean I, you know, he's always intense. And I again like some of the other people in it. I felt were very cardboard, and I, I don't I don't know. Mm-hmm. Like it I, again, maybe five and a half is too much, but uh, I you know what? Let's let's cast. I'm gonna say five. I'm gonna say five because. Wow. Um, I think acting was like the best part of this of the movie, in my opinion. I thought it, <laughs> interesting. I, I thought it, I thought it was the atmosphere. I liked. I enjoyed mm-hmm. the atmosphere. The atmosphere was high as well, too. I agree mm-hmm. with that. But well, I, I know there, there's some good acting in this movie for sure. I well, am. I am sitting in your ballpark, Jeff. Just yeah. I am sitting in your ballpark. Who did you like in this one? Well, Cruz. I did like Cruz. Did you? Okay. Uh, I, I found him. I didn't like John okay, Boyd. Right. I didn't like Emmanuel right. Bear. Uh, I did like Cherney was great. Uh, but there, in what he did, he was great. Yeah, I mean, it's not his fault that the script didn't give him really much exactly. to do until he's on that train, right? John Reno, Bing man. Rames, and and Bing, Bing Rames is good. Bing Rames is fun. Uh, yeah. And of course, Vanessa Redgrave, right? I mean, but, yeah, I mean, that's she was kind of like, she was the best. Easy role for her. She was. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Her her role, her character was the most believable uh, as the type of character that she was. So, uh, yeah. But I say the MVPs acting wise are probably Redgrave and Cherney, in my opinion, for the movie. Yep. Yeah, that's, fair. that's I, fair. I went through the cast list. I'll tell you exactly what I did because I didn't really, I wasn't much engaged with the story. I, I had to kind of go look at the performance of this one a little more objectively. And I tried to go through each of them like Cruz. Did I like him? Did I not? Voight, did I like him? Did I not? You know, did I think their performances were good? And I just kind of add, I basically halfway there. Like half of them I liked, half of them I didn't. And. 
And for that reason, I just went five right down the middle because I think I think that if mm-hmm. if any punters picking up or watching this film, they're going to like some of these actors and they're going to find other ones just a bit dull and cardboard, as you said, Jeff. Right? I'm with you. I'm. But but I'm acting is also are. very objective too, right? Well, I know. Yeah, that I know. Of course true. it is. Yeah. Of course it is. But Kristen Scott, Scott Thomas isn't in it long enough to make much no. of an impact as a great actor. No. No. Uh, they don't give. They, they, they simply don't give uh, Max a bigger role, and so we don't get a chance to see Vanessa. Redgrave really shine apart from the the kind of the poise she has and the you know that sort of uh, yes. regalness with which she carries the character that that's noticeable. Ving Rhames is cool, but he's also kind of wallpaper, you know. Um, yep. mm-hmm. Tom Cruise for me, but he's the only character I find that Cruise had the best chemistry with. Yeah, okay, yeah. But Tom Cruise just—I thought the whole movie it was schizophrenic. Man, he had this intense, the, the intense Cruise stare, right? Which is what you cited earlier, yeah. Josh. He's got that sort of stare, and then yep. you see him emote for one short moment, and then everything else is like the next scene. He's laughing as he's away with Max. Like, I—I I don't know. I, I found him really weird in this movie. I didn't uh, think his performance well, like, as a spy. Good. He's just—he's just like. You know, like he's kind of getting into the role that, he, that he's in. He, yeah, I guess so. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Like he's being a spy. He's like putting on a show, right? Like there's kind of a, to be a spy. I think you have to be a borderline sociopath, in my opinion. Hmm. Well, uh, I would. Yeah. It, it would probably help. And you got to have help, these, yeah. like you know the yeah. the you got to have the training of God and country to remember your morals and who you serve and what you do, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's the only thing that keeps the good part of you. Um, yeah. And I'm speaking. Maybe I'm speaking more morally than the movie did, but. I can kind of see how, like, someone like Phelps, well, you're who, definitely in series, who in the TV series was like, a good, like a real good guy, like he was like the team leader. All the whole, you know, Peter mm-hmm. Graves playing in the role. It's kind of I can see how someone like him would become jaded and become the way that he did. Yeah, but not to well, kill his yeah. whole team though. Exactly, bit... exactly. Yeah, like yeah, that's he did. Like the the reason he did what he did too. It was so silly. It, it wasn't. Make sense. It, it was. Yeah. I mean, yeah. so and he... then killing his, and then killing Claire. Like so, like poorly like, as well like, too. Just just yeah. fucking retire and you know. Yeah. If you got this yeah, kind of skill, I, uh, if you got this kind of skill behind you, rob a bank or do something that doesn't hurt people, get rich and go yeah. away. Yeah. Like that seemed his whole thing was he was disgruntled. So okay, go away and get some money. Anyway, yeah, you're right. So yeah, I went I, I went five for acting. Anyway, I'm in your ballpark, Jeff. I went seven for acting. Um, okay. Now, Cruz, uh, you know, I thought he was solid. Mm-hmm. Uh, he has one of those, he has maybe one or two Tom Cruise over the top moments, but he has a certain intensity that oozes professionalism at the same time. And mm-hmm. it makes him believable in the role with just a touch of Boy Scout earnestness that demonstrates his youth and moderate experience in the spy business okay John give me, give me an example started. give me an example of where you see this intensity uh seconding or, or doubling as professionalism i'm interested i'm going to pick you out on this well just in ju- just in terms of like how casual he was with his team and then just how he's able to adapt to certain situations like that whole sequence with the uh <clears throat> knock list and mm-hmm. and and krieger in the apartment building how he knows krieger has the discs but he tricks krieger into giving him Although to me that that's a metaphor for the entire relationship between the movie and the audience, in my opinion. But uh, <laughs> yeah, bait and switch, bait and switch, exactly. Yeah, I, I don't know. Like I just found, and maybe, and I will confess this a little bit. I'm thinking, I'm thinking of like later Ethan Hunt as a young man in this movie, as opposed to I guess just in the film alone. You got to so try not to romanticize it. I mean, I wasn't able to romanticize it because I haven't seen anything else. Yeah, yeah it, it, exactly. Fun. Yeah, like I'm not seeing Ethan Hunt, the veteran who does crazy stuff to get the job done, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. like, um, or or the guy who's kind of a team leader who gets everyone all working together. Right. Right. So this this to me was like his learning lesson, and maybe that was the arc that they wanted. To maybe. Make, like in the series, 
because up by the end of the movie, he's in John Boyd's place. He's listening to the yeah. tape on the plane, right? Mm-hmm. So maybe that was her goal, I guess, was to get him from one point to the other, mm-hmm. but not with- Who else did you like? I mean, to boost that to a seven? Did you like, um, you like Charney? You thought John that- Boyd, I found, yeah, John Boyd, I found he was charming and reserved as a villain. He didn't play it too over the top. But I don't know, man. Like he, he basically off. crawled. He climbed over the rail as he fell. Like I thought that was yeah. a bit, a bit handy. That was funny. Yeah. Was well, funny. but you know, but, but uh, like over the top of the hints that his coming betrayal are in the filmmaking and story, not in his performance, in my opinion. Okay. So, and he seems the same character throughout, and that's fine, as he could be putting on a person suit, so to speak, to mask his inner sociopath. So he's good, but I think the story fails him. No, I uh, see. I disagree with you there. I disagree with you there about the hints were in the storyline. Not like this guy. If he really was who he was, he's not just gonna get out and walk across the Charles Bridge when this thing is busting out. You know, like to me, that that that's what was the calling card for me. That why would he put himself in a situation that was so obviously a dangerous situation? It's obviously because he wants people to think he was killed out there. Like, oh, to, oh, 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 of course, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. Like, I'm just me, saying this. I don't know. I just found. Mm-hmm. John Boyd as an actor, I don't know. I just find him a very charming kind of individual, and okay. he put that he put that on in in the film for me, and I just kind of found that uh, he was this avuncular mentor like mm-hmm. character in the beginning, and I think it made his betrayal sting a little bit more. That, okay, and so I thought he carried that that out well. You may disagree with me, but that's my view on. It. Sure, yeah, um, that's all right, man. Mm-hmm. Anyways, uh, Estevez, uh, Scott Thomas, like they were good in their small roles, mm-hmm. and, you know, like they were serviceable. Really uh, so small. Uh, Cerny is good, is great. Uh, he walks a line between professional antagonist and hint mm-hmm. villainy with deadpan performance. Mm-hmm. Uh, Emmanuel Barrett was a weak link, maybe because she has acting. Yeah, in this very much. I mean, do you want to do you want to talk about her a little bit? Do you want to talk about yeah. her a little bit? I thought that well, she, she, had no she was weak. No one in the film. But the, no chemistry. And no. her, her no. character, I mean, it was so underwritten that she was just there. I just felt her present like like some yes. weird sort of uh, piece of furniture that just kept moving around. Yeah. And it's like she they just... wanted a European actress for the role, but they didn't know how to make her work with the cast at all. Uh, they, and maybe it should have been a little bit over budget to make it better. Or maybe it should have been well. a time to make it better. We know how all the trouble, you know, Terrence Young had making for Russia of Love. Yeah. And it was over budget and it did have a lot of disasters. But when it was done, I mean, you got a masterpiece. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's true. But Emmanuel, but... Emmanuel Bear, though, like, it was just more like she just seemed like it was awkward like, the whole time. Like, every scene she was in, she was like the girl at the party that uh, didn't want to talk to anyone or didn't know anyone and didn't care to get to know anyone. <laughs> that was, that's and, good. Yeah, scene. you're right. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, and, in every scene. And, uh, that's, that's the way I felt. I'm watching this. I'm like, okay, you're cute. Mm-hmm. And you, I don't, like, that's it. Like, I don't, I, that sounds terrible. But I just mean... <laughs> I, I couldn't I just like yeah every scene she just seemed like what's going on here like I there's nothing there's nothing to your character or you're you're not like she, it was adding a plot device for even to uh, use to play the final trick on Phelps at the end right so that's basically yeah. well yes basically and, and for Voight to reveal was supposed to be a trick on him yeah, like 100%. But, that, but so she's but, just uh, hanging around until that point yeah, of the story. Yeah. yeah. And I just, but honestly, yeah, I just, that whole thing about like the girl at the party doesn't want to talk to anyone. No, that's true. the way, like, when you, when, you, when, you, when you see, when you see her, her, her body language and all the scenes, that's what it looks like. Mm-hmm. Totally, man. I'm with you. I'm with you 100%. <laughs> there. The only hints of her possibly, you know, being like uh, some kind of character, as I mentioned in my summary, you know, that she made shitty coffee. 
Like, yeah, yeah. Good point. About the team. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> if she if she knew the team, she would know what who likes what and what you know. But this stuff is. I mean, we're deep exactly. diving. We're deep diving to find these. Yeah, I things. know we are. Yeah. And, Which is probably not there. Well, maybe, maybe it is. Maybe it is. Maybe yeah. maybe maybe upon repeating. I mean, Robert Town is, is a well-renowned screenwriter, but he's also yeah. known for being a party animal and drinking, having a lot of cocaine as well. So mm. who knows? Well. Do you have anything more you want to say about acting? I, I don't have anything more to say, Jeff. Uh, I, I just wanted to say that, uh, yeah, Emmanuel Baird, she had chemistry with nobody. She was the weak link. Right. Uh, Ving Rames was great from his first scene. He had good chemistry with Cruz, establishing a stickle as a permanent picture in the MI franchise. Jean Reno, uh, that was the first film in which I really mm-hmm. hate the character that he played. Now, he did a good job, though. He was a skeezy motherfucker in that movie. Like, yeah. uh, he was nasty. And uh, I, he was one of the few characters that I kind of found believable in the movie actually mm-hmm. and i mean Vanessa redgrave we talked about her i mean well also uh ingeborg and i can't remember her last name um she hannah. like we, hannah hannah williams who uh and i, I realized was after watching most likely. it it was i think but uh, she's actually uh plays in a a recent show that's on netflix called occupied it's kind of like a norwegian 24 or homeland and she plays a, a russian uh, FSB agent. She's excellent. Yeah, she's a Russian actress. She's not a British actress. Cool. Like, a British. She's not like in the show. She in the movie. Yeah, I know. I think she's like a, a British agent, right? That's pretty much or something. But that they just don't that. ever talk, so you don't have to worry about it. That's why they're in Canada. Yeah. But, uh, but she's very, very good in the show Occupied. Watch it. It's excellent. She's very good in that. Mm. Um, but uh, so yeah, seven out of ten. Seven out of ten okay. for me in terms of uh, acting. Right. Um, well, Let's go to atmosphere. I, I will fire on. I don't. I don't have a lot to say here. I thought this was the strongest part of the story. I, I gave, oh. uh, sorry, of the film. I gave atmosphere a six, and the reason I gave it a six is because uh, I, I'm not punishing it for being ninety ninety six. I'm, I'm, I accept the the technology of the time, the green screening, that what we've got going on there is very much sure. what I would have expected. Um, and Josh's production notes help, you know, I think solidify that as a six for me yeah. because I, I got sure. good, a good, good info on that. But I felt as though the um, the film was too dependent on the coolness of this technology. And I, it, it, to me, I didn't like what they were doing with the technology. Okay, so you've got all this ability. I thought that that helicopter thing in the in the tunnel it, it defied possibility. It was absolutely mm. ridiculous. Like oh, I thought, it was. How that, could he no, keep like it, it, it took me completely out of it. Come completely out of the film when i was watching this i wasn't thinking holy shit the stakes are high first of all i don't care there are no stakes in this movie for me as i've already explained from the story (laughs) but i'm watching this for action now and i'm just thinking wow this is dumb this is dumb because you know the whole thing depends upon the helicopter keeping up the same speed as the train (laughs) and that's not going to happen in a tunnel right it's just not going to you've got to be an incredibly skilled pilot to do that also he he clipped the roof of the tunnel when he got in the tunnel (laughs) that's right and and, and helicopters are not known for if any like if you get a friggin birch birch key from a birch tree mm-hmm. in your rotor it, your helicopter is going to go down you're telling me at i literally you're going in the train and it clips the top of it and it can still fly uh, oh. i, I not for, for forget the whole like part where jean reno's character is trying to like you know decapitate crews with like the helicopter blades like I, i'm not forgetting concentration, that perfect concentration going through like the channel you know what i mean so oh, yeah <laughs> but i but just think this, there was uh, sorry tgv train there's no subtlety in any of this the way the technology is used it is all 
it's all Pierce Brosnan windsurfing to me. Do you know what I mean? It's all die another day bonkers. I, I, and... I do disagree one part though about that sequence. Okay. The whole idea of like using that wind machine to show them hanging on to like the top of the train and no, making it yeah, very difficult. Cool. Like, not like your usual like fighting top of a train sequence mm-hmm. you normally see. That was cool and yeah, as well. Sure. But then when the helicopter comes into play, then that's when it get, gets kind of ridiculous. But know? I'm not I'm not or punishing it. If, 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 if Phelps had managed to get onto the helicopter before entering the the channel, yes. or yes. you know, it was, I think when they entered the channel, that was the problem part. That's when they went too ambitious, oh, I think, for that sequence. Absolutely. Well, they, they needed their big ending, right? And and okay, fair enough. I, I get I get that you want to climax an action scene, but I. I look, the, the the six isn't a punishment because of the technology. As I said, I, I I appreciate the technology, but I don't like what they used it for. I I think you could have done other stuff. You could have stayed in Prague and done yeah. something like uh, like Spectre did with Mexico City. You could have done something different there. You know, you don't have to go yes. to the impossible, where even school children will know this could never fucking happen yeah. ever happen yeah. like it, it defies like all the laws bond, of physics it was, it was almost like beyond a bond movie and they're trying to make a solid spy film out of oh, it, it, but I, that, I guess that yeah, was their goal yeah. but yeah but i agree with that come back to what you're saying josh do you want a, a summer blockbuster or do you want a spy film you're giving me ridiculous here when i should have a little bit more profane you know like yes i'm just saying it it, it it didn't work for me i didn't care about these characters because at this point they're they're gi joes right that's what they are they're gi oh, joes yeah. jumping around on top of stuff like in my imagination that's what's happening right now. And they're, what if they're, yeah. they're GI Joes. They're GI Joes that had the fog of like, oh, we got Robert Town cool and these great doing these great dialogue <laughs> scenes, getting all these good actors. But when you have like what it is basically is just, is just because you have great actors, just because you have some good dialogue sequences, mm. that still can be superficial. Yes. You know, on top mm. of something that's mm. completely, you know, not not logical and inconsistent you know what i mean nah, well just to give you two other things that i'll say the score to me was middling i know elfman put it together at the end and i know I that alan it. sylvester yes. I, I thought the score was all right but there wasn't anything in here that's noteworthy i mean i'm not taking away any single cue or any single moment that's like awesome mm. outside of maybe what's already been made cool by lalo schifrin i don't think that yeah. there's anything in here that's more than serviceable i did however like and i gave it more than just a simple pass i liked some of the camera work i thought De palma was trying to build suspense with camera angles and close-ups as yes. we we're saying you know i thought some of the dialogue scenes were filmed nicely and i you know i think there's stuff to look at technically in this movie outside of the cgi and outside How of that the technology in, in the uh, elevator where like you have glitzing on one side waiting for the elevator then you have like jack and, and the elevator shaft day eh? like mm-hmm. just that it was almost like it was like a, like a cross section going yeah, to the, yeah. the camera move <laughs> that's classic to palma it's almost hitchcock in a way too i think too mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, I yeah, yeah for, I went for six guys. Uh, that's me done. So that brings me to a total of fifteen out of thirty. So it's just a passing film for me. Yeah, I was eight out of ten for the atmosphere. Okay, right. I yeah. like the camera work. So... I liked uh, the editing and set design. Um, the fog in Prague. The whole look of like Prague was great in the movie. After that, yes, it was. Feel yep. to, that feel to it. Um, it, it needed to tighten up like the plot, perhaps even simplify a, a tad, but not too much. Mm-hmm. But the story and internal logic got superseded by the production itself, which wasn't a huge production per se, but there was an emphasis to make it look good. Mm-hmm. You can see that they were trying to make it look good. They were trying to kind of maybe get the Mission Impossible audience in on it, get some of the movie audiences on it. Right. Like, But they weren't ambitious enough to make it into something really special, uh, in my opinion, unlike, mm-hmm. you know, like, the late the later films but you have tom cruise going all out in the production and making something right. that he really thinks is cool you know what i mean 
Um, I don't know. I can't remember if I, I think I said my atmosphere was six. So I, I'm just saying like, so I, I, I'm at about, uh, a 17, which is, I think that's definitely generous. Um, but for, yeah, I mean it, this film, I, I, I enjoy this film and, uh, I don't know if I'll watch it anytime soon again. I'm glad that I did watch it and i think it was a fun one too yeah, i'm, I'm uh, glad we've we've had this chat for, for sure uh, and i think it definitely is appropriate for our uh our three non-bonds good uh for What's sure. does going it make you appreciate on? the current state of the franchise yeah it does it does actually yeah. yeah because you saw like you know where it came from and now you're see- and i think a lot of people were like uh who i don't who i think are hesitant against the new franchise a little bit because they got this movie on their mind and i guess some of them really really loved it i liked this movie when it came out but at the same time like uh, the current films to me are—they are, uh, uh, are superior. They are superior, in my opinion. Oh. Yeah, they are. I know. I'll, I know. I have people who disagree. I, I know that disagree mm-hmm. with me on that. You know, people want more of an average spy movie, but right. I mean, this tries to be an average spy movie in its own, or typical spy movie in its way. It tries to be cerebral, but really, it's just using the tricks of, of cinema to mask, you know, the flaws in the film. And like I said, I, it came under budget. This movie uh, and on time. And maybe, you know, maybe it should have taken a little longer to uh, well, make it really well, stand out. I, I kind of felt this, like, uh, I just kind of felt this film kind of went very quickly. I felt like it just kind of, like... It did. It was a the, short after, film. After, after, after the like, the first team gets killed and then they have the scene, you know, like, uh, Churney and Cruz, or, you know, um, Kittredge and, Langley. Uh, and Hunt. And then it's just like, bang, wow. Okay. And then they go to Langley and then it's just like, whoa, it's just, this thing just sped up. Uh, I, like, wow. I, I just think it's funny how like and I mentioned this again in my summary is like mm-hmm. uh, the very fact that like so Eden finds out that he's uh, dis- he's like disavowed on the company internet in the yeah. IF safe house Under- in the <laughs> and yet they don't know where he is on, yeah. using that server and yet as soon as he yeah. puts the knock list into like Max's computer, the IMF team is there like in 20 seconds. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, that's right. If they had stayed <laughs> consistent with how the technology was seen by IMF, I think you're absolutely right, Josh. Like how is it you can you give a one hand and take away with the other because it suits the scene, right? But that, but I think that has to do with the like 1996. Plotting around the action sequences. I think well. that has to do with 1996. And plotting uh, around well, action sequences. And plotting around people... action sequences, yeah. And plotting around action exactly. Because you got evidence of it working one way in the film and then working the other way in the film, right? Yeah. For the convenience of the scene. But what did you like about the atmosphere, Jeff? I mean, you were, you were with me at a, at a six. What did you like about it? Well, I mean, it... It, it did feel like a spy film, so I appreciate, yeah. you know, the the exteriors and, and uh, you know, the character. Like, it did, you know, just sort of like the meetups and uh, and and how they they made it feel like, you know, you're in Europe. And, uh, like Europe, I said, like, Europe did that, though. I mean... <laughs> no, no, well, well that, yeah, true. Europe kind of does that on its own. Mm-hmm. You know? I, 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 yeah, I, I guess. Uh, <laughs> I suppose that's true. So would you um, recommend the film? I mean, ultimately, I, you're 17. Wait, wait. You're at 17. I mean, are you going to recommend this movie to people? I would, but I, I would I would put disclaimer. I'd be like, look, if you're if you're not into uh, like if you like contemporary action espionage films, if if you have a real issue with sort of like 
mediocre plot and, and stuff like that <laughs> and, and technology yeah, yeah. and then then stay away okay uh, but if you're open but if you're open to it and you want to see how a franchise sort of um, taking over from a from a television show from the 60s and 70s how a franchise in the mid to late 90s mm-hmm. sort of um, you know, evolved and yeah, see where it was. Yeah, stay away. Okay, then then yeah. then, then 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 watch this. Yeah, watch uh, it. Yeah, you I, know? I think the response to the convoluted plot too. I think that led to the simplistic plot of like Mission Impossible Two, which is basically a John Woo movie, like you know, with like slow motion gunshot, like mm-hmm. double handguns and, and like and doves and doves. And doves. <laughs> yes, <laughs> right. Well, look, guys, this film hasn't turned me off the other films in the franchise because of what you're saying uh, and everyone, everyone else's conviction, of course, that the series does different things and goes in different directions. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to have another Mission Impossible recommended to me. Watching this movie wasn't a waste of time. I had some good laughs, sure. but I, I couldn't <laughs> recommend, I can't recommend it. Uh, it and I, I'm not punishing it for being 1996. The great stuff no, comes I from am. that area. And great stuff yes. comes from Brian De Palma. You know, one of my favorite films is, is The Fury. I love The Fury. And I love mm-hmm. the, uh, the the Untouchables. You know, I like Snake Eyes, too, and Nick Cage. I, I think oh, yeah. he's a great, a great director. But this film, for me, man, I, I wouldn't recommend this one. It felt like a platform video game, you know, like where what's the next thing that's jumping out after me? You know, this, this uh, thing's happening. Yeah. And, uh, and now it's my character's got to jump over this thing, you know. It's linear, but <laughs> but everything that flies out of it, it's, it's about as, you know, makes about as much sense as, I mean, yeah, Ethan's linear. He's moving across the screen from left to right, but everything else that jumps yeah. out is like meant to make me, you know, surprised and care. And it, it just, it really didn't. I didn't care if Ethan made it or not. I had no interest in that. I, I got that he was good and he was kind of framed, but I, yeah, phew, nah, didn't do much for me because the character development wasn't there. It just wasn't there. And I need, I need to buy into a character if I'm going to enjoy a film like that. And Fair the enough. film, the film just wanted the substance, but it, yeah. it was only giving me you know, bang and whams and explosions and stuff. I don't know. if this, Am I an old man, guys? Is this what's happened to me? <laughs> I, I, uh, I don't need to fit on that, but I see of, where you're coming from. <laughs> I would put this over movies like, for example, Independence Day or Godzilla. Uh-huh. Like, yeah. If some of the movies are more like this than opposed to, you know, like Michael Bay, like blow em ups, then, you know, like that would be great. The I don't know, man. Impossible is is that like you go watch like a Michael Bay movie, you know what the frick you're getting. You know what Good I mean? Point. Yeah, exactly. Oh, I, I know movie. what you I'm got getting. You got Brian De Palma yeah. directing. You got Tom Cruise in a lead. You got a spy story. You know, it could be really cool and interesting. Mm-hmm. But then you get this mix of what they're trying to do with the movie, and then mm-hmm. you, you know, like there are bad movies, and we enjoy them for being bad. But when a movie that should be good mm-hmm. isn't good. You know, or, or great, I guess you could say, in terms of, of, of argument, uh, then I mean, that's kind of a letdown, too. All right. Well, then let me ask you guys this. How self-conscious is this film in terms of competing with the Michael Bays and the Crimson Tides of the world? Like, I mean, is it self-conscious? I don't self-conscious? think the Michael Bay movies give a shit, <laughs> to be honest. No, yeah. but I'm not asking like, about what? the Michael Bay movies. I'm asking about yeah. these, this film. How self-conscious is it that it has to give the audience some of that, as well oh, as a good I spot? Think it's pretty, I think it's pretty it, 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 It's very self-conscious. You can see like, they're trying yeah. so many... Look at the explosion at the end. It's a hell of yeah. a... Mm-hmm. Like, so, like, 
they're trying to try do trying to do too many so many things with this movie. Yeah. Like yeah. they're trying not to be too ambitious, but then they are being ambitious. They're they're, they're trying to make a spy movie, but they're really make, trying to make an action movie at the right. same yeah, time. Exactly. Right, so you know what I mean? like, you're telling me that Brian De Palma's going home feeling taxed every day from directing this film, and he probably is sleeping with the pillow over his head because he's not entirely proud of what he's producing? Is that what you're saying? Which could, it could possibly explain the reason why he decided not to do the press interviews. Maybe he wasn't happy with the movie. Maybe that's not because him and Tom Cruise didn't get along, but mm. he didn't go to the press interviews and promote the film. Maybe it's just that you know, he wasn't happy with it in the end. Right. And he seems yeah. like the kind of perfectionist type, so you're probably right on that. I, I'm just, I'm just, um, you know, suggesting. I'm, I'm not declaring at all. We can but... only speculate because yeah, there's I'm no. Speculating. The Palmas never, right. never, never, could never commented on it. Okay, so. well, but uh, well, I think that's it, guys. I think that that puts a wrap yeah. on on Mission Impossible. Uh, I'm glad, yeah, that, so. I'm glad that we did it. I am glad that we did it, even though I didn't like mm-hmm. it. I'm glad we had the chat and we thrashed it out. And uh, so. What's next then? I mean, obviously we've got other episodes in store, but for our next, um, for our next three non bonds, I think that's on Jeff's. Uh, we're on it's Jeff's turf. Jeff, turf is now. It? We're on Jeff's turf, yeah. Yeah. yeah so we're going to be looking at uh, John Frankenheimer's Ronin, isn't that right, Jeff? That is correct. You have selected Ronin. Excellent. And why have you selected that one? Uh, it was a movie that I watched in the late '90s, and it was one that I had picked up at I think it was Blockbuster, uh, just sort of like in the the used bin, and I and uh, I watched it, and I it was one of those ones where I would watch it like almost every week, and I just I thought it was just a really solid film, mm-hmm. um, and uh, it just it was one of those like espionage movies that. Uh, and action and espionage, but mostly espionage that I just thought was a really smooth operator. Like good acting, interesting cast, well directed, well edited, believable, just really fun. And uh, I mean, I haven't watched it in a long time, so maybe I might feel like it doesn't hold up well. But mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. I, I think I think it's a good one to to bring to the table here for one of the non Bond movies. I'm looking forward to watching it again. I do remember seeing it once, Josh. I think I saw this with you. Yeah, I, I got that did. in my mind. I don't I remember. I think, I think we uh, rented it or something, didn't we? Okay, or, or, we might or, have. no, no. I had the VHS and you hadn't seen it. I think you were in. Uh, Maybe my place. that like, was it. Maybe that we was it. We were living in Peterborough at the time, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah, I don't remember much of no, it. No, no, no. It wasn't Peterborough. It was in Ottawa. It, was it would have been Canada, yeah. Uh, anyway, I'm looking forward to it. I don't remember much about it, but yeah, I think I remember I'll liking it quite a bit. Great, great, great car chase. I've seen it quite a bit. Oh, man. Yeah. I've seen it quite a bit. Too, too good to be honest. So I'm going to be more harder, I think, on it. I haven't seen it in a long time, yeah. but I watched it a lot. <laughs> okay, cool. Well, this is good. I, I, I mean, I'm not a novice to it. I have seen it. I know who's in it. Uh, I know De Niro's in it, and I remember car chases. But it's it's Sean cool that you you guys and, will be more experienced than yeah. I am on it. Yeah. And we also have another '90s. I think it took place. This movie was filmed like a year after. Uh, Mission about Impossible. 97? Yeah, it was about yeah, 97. Yeah, you're after Mission Impossible. So right. interesting to compare, you know, two 90s movies on the spy genre, you know, like and how right. they and how and how they differ. I think that would be interesting. Mm-hmm. This is quite a quite a different film. Cool. Well, I am. I'm still. I'm still between films. Uh, I got an mm-hmm. idea of where I might like to go with my own three non-bonds, but we decided to go Josh, then Jeff, and then me. So this is good. I'm not. I'm not going to worry about mine until uh, until later. So Ronan is. You're doing good. Austin Powers, aren't you? <laughs> I could. <laughs> Hey, I think there's scope for that, man. There's definitely oh, room for that. Oh, there definitely do a shot. You should do a shot in the dark. <laughs> I can, I should, eh? Or how about Johnny English? <laughs> uh, I'm on it. Don't worry. Or James Bond Jr., season one to four. Oh, God. James if, Bond. Oh, if, my there, God. if there were even four seasons, I don't know. I don't think there was, no. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, on, on that lofty note, 
Thanks, yeah, guys. This, this is, uh, this is Josh in Ottawa signing out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, this is Jeff on the other side of Ottawa signing off. And across the river and uh, across the or, river. Or over the hills and far away. That's what I was, I was trying to find something. No. Yeah, rhythmic <laughs> like that. Yeah. No, just across across the, across the ocean, across the pond. Yeah, in Scotland. Yep. Lockdown. This is Bowman saying goodbye. And thank you very much. Let us know. Let us know what you think of uh, Mission Impossible. Um, if you agree that... Like I thought, at least, this film uh, didn't know what it wanted to do with story and cared a lot more about wham and bam than giving me a character to buy into, to, uh, to, to follow. Or did you give it credit the way Josh did, thinking that Mission Impossible deserves a little more? Or did you just find it? I didn't it really bit... say that, but okay. <laughs> hey, look, man, this is uh, it's, it's the privilege of, of having the last word, right? I can yeah. rewrite history. You totally can. You totally can. Yeah. yeah. Fine. Or, fine. or were you like Jeff safely between the two? I was kind of b between the two. Like I can see, like, mm. I don't dislike this movie. Like I've seen worse movies than this. And like, sure. I, I, and this movie, I, I really want, I really want to like it because it has all of the facets of the spy genre in mm. there for me. Mm. But I found that like, despite it, you know, people saying, you know, people saying like purist mission possible fans saying like, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, I kind of prefer the original movie. It's not as like you know crazy stunts and action like the other films are and stuff. Right. Like this is like it's more cerebral. I think this movie has the facade of being cerebral, but if mm -hmm. you look at it underneath the surface, like there's a lot of problems with it as well. I still enjoy it, yeah, but yeah. not as much as like the, the current films. Of course. Uh, thanks again, everybody, for listening, and be sure to check us out on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter, and let us know what you think of the show, or if you have any yeah. ideas for your own three non-bonds. What would you pick? Three non-bond spy films. Give us your thoughts, and let us know. You know two of the three that we're going to focus on now, and I'm looking forward to getting into our next episode, so goodbye, Josh. Goodbye, Jeff. It's been fun, and take care of yourselves, everybody. Ciao. Stay healthy and stay safe.